Thank you. Merci. Trent Terence Sinclair versus Her Majesty the Queen, and Stanley James Willier versus Her Majesty the Queen, <clears throat> and Donald Russell McCrimmon versus Her Majesty the Queen. Gilles D. McKinnon QC and Lisa J. Helps for the appellant Trent Terence Sinclair. P. Andrus Schreck and Candace Slater for the Intervenor Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario. Warren B. Millman and Michael A. Fader for the Intervenor British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. Jonathan C. Lissus, Alexei N. Wood and Adam Shipp for the Intervenor Canadian Civil Liberties Association. M. Joyce DeWitt and Susan Van Austin and Susan J. Brown for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen. <coughs> David Schambrucker, Christopher Manella uh, for the intervener, Director of Public Prosecutions of Canada, and John S. McInnes, Deborah Crick for the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario. Moving on to the Willier case, Mary McDonald, uh, Lauren L. Garcia, and Ma Mary McDonald for the appellant. James Stanley Willier, Gordon Tomlanovich, QC, and Brian Graff for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, M. Joyce DeWitt Van Austin for the intervener, Attorney General, British Columbia. And moving on then finally to uh, McCrimmon, Gilles D. McKinnon, QC, Christopher J. Nolan for the applicant, appellant, rather, Mary T. Ainsley, for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen. Thank you, Mr. McKinnon. Now, I should say there's a publication ban on the names of the complainants in Donald Russell McCrimmon versus Her Majesty the Queen, pursuant to 46.4 of the Criminal Code. Mr. McKinnon. Chief mm -hmm. Justice, Justices. For the past 20 years, this Court has recognized the fundamental importance of Section 10B of the Charter of Rights in protecting the interests of a person who is detained or in custody. The issue before this Court today is the scope and content of that right in a custodial interrogation where the suspect has already spoken to counsel prior to the commencement of that interrogation. And given the respective positions of the parties, I submit that there are three questions for the Court. <clears throat> First, was the appellant entitled upon request to further legal assistance during the course of this interrogation? Secondly, if the answer to that is yes, were the appellant's Section 10B rights breached when the officer failed to suspend the interrogation to provide the appellant with a reasonable opportunity to obtain further legal assistance. And third, if the answer to that question is yes, should the statements to the officer and the reenactment that subsequently followed be excluded under Section 24 of the two of the Charter? Mm -hmm. My respectful submission is all three questions should be answered in the affirmative. My friend's position is that all questions should be answered in the negative. And there are five basic points I submit that separate the two parties on this issue. 
and they cover the purpose of Section 10B of the Charter, the face value of the, of the words in Section 10B, the jurisprudence of this court on the scope and content of Section 10B, and fourthly, the methodology used in determining the content of Section 10B, and that I refer to the balancing, whether the state interest can be balanced. And fifthly, the relationship between the Section 10B right and the Confessions Rule in Section 7. I wish to address all five of those points, but firstly wish to give you just a summary of my position with respect to this issue, or these issues. And they are that the 10B right during a custodial interrogation is both comprehensive but not absolute. And I say comprehensive both in time and in subject matter. Comprehensive in time in the sense that the right is a continuing one from the time the person is detained until he or she is released from custody. <clears throat> in other words, it is not exhausted upon one or two calls to the police officer prior to the interrogation. And the second reason I say it's comprehensive is because of the subject matter. I say that the right permits counsel to give an accused or a suspect advice on a wide range of issues, not limited to his right to silence or whether or not he should speak to the authorities, but covers a wide range of issues. Could you tell us how this proposition, I'm sorry, was I interrupting? No, not at all, my lady. How, uh, could you tell us how this proposition, the, or the particular comprehensive nature that you're advancing here, differs from the case law? How much farther do you want us to take what we've said so far about the content of the 10B right? <clears throat> my respectful submission, uh, Justice Abelli, is that, and this takes me to the, the means by which uh, an accused can access legal advice during the course of the interrogation. I say there are three means. One is by telephone contact. Another is by suspending the interrogation to allow counsel to come down and have a face-to-face -face meeting with the accused. And the third is by permitting counsel to come into the counsel room, or to the interrogation room and sit during the course of the interrogation. I say the first two means by which a suspect can access that legal assistance are covered by this court's jurisprudence. And I refer specifically to Burlingham. My friends and I differ on the interpretation of Burlingham. And we're before this court asking this court to clarify for ourselves the scope of that. But I say those first two means fall within the court's jurisprudence. It's the third means permitting counsel to come in to the interrogation room that isn't covered by this court's jurisprudence. And I say, and I'm respectfully asking the court today to break new constitutional ground on that issue alone. But if I could go just to continue my outline of my position, after making the point that it's comprehensive, I say it's not absolute, and I say the right isn't absolute in this sense. 
the obligation is on the detainee during the course of the interrogation to make reasonable efforts to find that legal assistance, due diligence. That detainee must take the initiative. It must be upon his request before the police officers have the obligation to sit back or at least suspend the interrogation. And on the other hand, the officers have the obligation in that sense then to suspend and provide the means by which he may obtain that legal advice. Can I take you back to a prior yes. question that's in my mind as you discuss the mechanics of how 10B plays out? Yes. What is it that you say is the purpose of the 10B right? Because I think that how you characterize yes. the content of, of the 10B right, why you're entitled to access counsel, will to some extent determine what, what we say flows from that. Yes. <clears throat> and I say if I could ask you just to turn on that point to the condensed book and tab 11, which is the statement of Chief Justice Lemaire in the Bartle decision that is often referred to in outlining the various purposes for Section 10B. That passage is familiar to this court, but in response to the question, Justice Abella, I submit that there, it's really a five-pronged, multiple-purpose Section 10B. Bartle is often cited for the proposition that the individual must be informed of his rights. That's the first proposition, and obligations. But Chief Justice Lemaire in Bartle makes the point, more importantly, the individual must be informed about how to exercise those rights. And that is critical on the case that is before you today. Chief Justice Lemaire also refers to Ebert, and subsequent to that, the case of Singh, has emphasized the point, that, which is the third point, I say, on the purpose of 10b, and that is that the state is required to give the individual the opportunity to make an informed decision about whether or not he's going to speak to the police or not. And the means by which that is enacted is through the right to counsel. The fourth proposition or purpose, I say, for 10b comes within this passage as well from Chief Justice Lemaire where they speak about the need to protect the risk against self-incrimination. That is fundamental. And the fifth is the overall fairness to a detainee in a custodial interrogation situation between his isolation and the overwhelming uh, resources of the state. Now, my submission to this court is that the learned trial judge and the BC Court of Appeal took a very narrow approach to the purpose of 10b in the ruling. In effect, reaching the conclusion that if the individual knew that he had the right to silence and knew that he, that was his decision and had legal advice on that point, that was it. That was, in effect, exhausting the right to silence, and it was done so in two telephone calls in this particular case beforehand. And if I could just take you to a passage from 
uh, firstly, the interrogation, and then secondly, to the reasons of the learned trial judge to demonstrate this point, I say that on the very narrow interpretation of the Section 10b right, there was a breach in this particular case. And if I could ask you to turn to uh, tab 7 of the condensed book, which is one of the final passages uh, of the interrogation. And just to put it in context, this comes at page 67 of, uh, of an interrogation of about 117 pages, about two hours and 19 minutes in. Prior to this time, just to put it in context, prior to this time, the individual, the appellant, has asked for the presence of counsel to be with him in the interrogation room, saying he was feeling uncomfortable about ask, answering questions without the presence of counsel. He had exercised his right to silence some nine times. He had asked to delay speaking with the officer until his lawyer saw the material that the officer was saying was overwhelming evidence against him. So all of that is in the background to this passage here. And I ask the court as well, if you have time, the audio video of this was filed as an exhibit. And it is a very telling exchange between the appellant five minutes before this passage and the officer. You will see the appellant sitting on his chair, curled up, hands over his shoulders, head down with the officer right touching him on his shoulder with his chair rolled up to him and the officer speaking in very soothing terms. So that is the context which sets this passage off. And he's, he's asked the last line there of his passage, which is the officer, he says, you killed Gary because you enjoy it, right? And Gary or Trent. The appellant says, I want to talk to my lawyer. Question. Trent, you talked to your lawyer already, okay? For a minute on the phone, that's no. I want to talk to him when he's, when I see him on Monday. You'll recall that the lawyer said he wasn't going to come down until Monday because he wasn't sure about his legal aid certificate, the appellant having been arrested on a Saturday. Question, well, you'll have an opportunity to talk to him again, but you already talked to him twice, okay, Trent? And you know what? Nobody can come in and make this decision for you but you. Answer, when my lawyer comes. Now that is one of the final portions in which he's asking for his lawyer. I want to then ask you to turn to the section, the next tab, tab 9, the reasons for judgment, of the, sorry, the ruling of the learned trial judge. Tab 9 of paragraph 139 and 140. Because I say this demonstrates, the finding the trial judge makes in this passage, I say demonstrates a breach of the charter right in the Bartol sense. At paragraph 139, there were a number of times when Sinclair asserted his right to silence. He indicated he wanted his lawyer to see the evidence, <clears throat> that he did not have anything to say about it, that he wanted to talk to his lawyer about it, 
On one instance, he said he would like to talk to his lawyer on Monday. This was on a Saturday. Now, the passage I've just taken you to from the interrogation is what the learned trial judge is referring to in the next passage. At one point towards the end, he did say, I don't know what to do. I want to think about it, muddle through it. I want to talk to my lawyer. And it was suggested that clearly indicated that he was confused about what his rights were and that he should have been given an opportunity to consult with counsel. I think it was getting close to the line in this particular case, but I'm satisfied that what Mr. Sinclair was concerned about and confused about is the choice he had to make, not whether it was his choice to make. Now, I say there's a finding of fact, a critical finding of fact there by the trial judge that in the context of his asking for a lawyer, he was confused or concerned about the choice he had to make whether or not to speak to the police officers. And that is precisely the purpose this court has articulated over almost 20 years for Section 10B. And I say the error there is apparent in that passage. If I could take you or ask you to turn to uh, a follow-up at paragraph 169 on this point in the reasons for judgment. 169, learned trial judge says, with regard to the references to counsel, it's clear that Mr. Sinclair understood what his rights were and was clear that it was his decision whether he was going to speak or not, and I'm satisfied that although he might have liked to have been able to talk to his lawyer, he understood what his choice was and that the police were not obliged after he had been able to retain counsel to give him a further opportunity in this particular interview. Many times, please do it and may be a good tactic. The advice is not to, going to change very much. That last line, the advice is not going to change very much, I say is a second error on the learned trial judge's part because this court has been consistent over the years that one does not get into speculating about what kind of advice a lawyer is going to be giving the individual in any particular circumstances. There's a second aspect to this whole issue of the purpose, and that is the fourth and fifth aspects when I mentioned the protection against the risk of self-incrimination and the fairness. I asked the court to consider for a moment the situation of an individual like the appellant in a custodial interrogation, vis-a-vis -vis the resources of the state. The state chose the time of the arrest. It chose Saturday. The state delayed some five hours to allow a very skilled interrogator to come in, prepare, and then go into the interrogation room. The state, through the police officer, was permitted during the course of the interrogation, and the learned trial judge found, to lie to the individual, to exaggerate the evidence, to manipulate the evidence. And on the authorities, the, the officers was entitled to persuade the appellant to give up his right to silence, so long as he used uh, persuasion techniques that did not cross over the line. Put that on one side, and then look at the individual's isolated position. All he wanted to balance that off was the right to speak to his lawyer again. 
after having two very brief three-minute calls earlier. How would we, how would you suggest we frame that refinement of the test? In other words, how many times do you think it would be reasonable in a given interview of several hours to accede to the request, or is it your position that every time it's sought, it should be uh, respected? Yes. I, I see uh, Justice Frank, Mr. Justice Franklin, in the, in the court below, uh, took the point because I had made the submission that he had requested counsel to five times. And Mr. Justice Frankel said in his view it wasn't a continuum. Basically, in my understanding of his decision, once was sufficient. And I, and I adopt that. I say there should only have to be one request in an interrogation, of no matter how long, whether it's at the beginning, the middle, or the end, to have further consultation with his counsel before the obligation is imposed on the police to suspend. And I emphasize the word suspend the interrogation, not terminate. My learned friends have taken the position that I am arguing for a complete termination of the interrogation. I am not. I am simply suggesting that there be a suspension of that interrogation until there's a reasonable opportunity to contact counsel. Um, some of the alternatives canvassed in the materials uh, suggest, uh, for example, from Australia, I believe, that there could be exigent circumstances, such as where another life is in danger yes. or another crime is about to be committed where uh, the police would not want to suspend. What is your response to that? And I, I agree with that. Um, this court has made it very clear that in ensuring that the 10B uh, rights are properly uh, given and uh, obligation to hold off, there's an exception there, exigent circumstances, danger to victims. And I, I say the same principle should apply in this particular uh, situation. In an odd situation, though, if one request stops consultation, restarts, another request stops, it in fact becomes a, a suspension by a series of requests to uh, consult with a lawyer. <coughs> how, how, how do you limit it? Well, with, I say that leads to my ultimate invitation to this court to consider in permitting counsel to attend if the individual requests the attendance of his counsel. And I say that because that is one problem that can arise. An individual may want contact after hour one and may want contact again after hour two. But I say that even if that arises, there should be no impediment to that being permitted. Yes, the interrogation is suspended. But in this case here, counsel was readily available. He was contacted immediately when the tele and telephone call was put out to him. So there should be no difficulty in suspending an interrogation four or five times if counsel wishes to speak, uh, sorry, if the suspect wishes to speak to counsel again. And but, then suspending it until the lawyer could come, like on Monday? I, I say yes as well, Madam Justice Deschamps. In, in, this, in this case, precisely for the reason Chief Justice mentioned, in this case there were no exigent circumstances, urgent circumstances on the weekend to necessitate the conclusion of this interrogation prior to Monday. 
And I say Monday in the, on the facts of this case is a reasonable opportunity, or sorry, is a reasonable period to suspend the, the balance of the interrogation. Is this going to lead in your model to no interrogations at all in some cases? For example, a counsel could be present or, or simply advise every so on and every once in a while, do not say anything. In some of these cases, that was apparently the advice. Um, so uh, the consequences, I'm not quite clear on how the police, maybe that you will say they don't have a right to interrogate, but, no. but uh, wh what is the practical reality of, uh, of your propositions? Chief Justice, the Attorney General from Ontario intervener made a point in paragraph 10 of his factum that the appellant's position was um, against the whole concept, basically, of interrogations, obtaining confessions. That is not my position at all. I recognize the importance of interrogations, the right of the police officers to question the accused in solving crime. What I am complaining about and asking this court to rectify is the imbalance that occurred, the unfairness that occurred in this particular, in the circumstances of this particular case. I do not see it as an end to the right to interrogate. I see it rather as this court giving full scope to the Section 10B Charter right by defining the concepts of retaining and instructing counsel and looking to the French text of à l'assistance d'un avocat, to give it the full breadth, to allow counsel to come in upon request of the individual. Short of uh, going through new routes, as you are you're inviting the court to go there, but short of that, is there not room in the existing jurisprudence on reasonable opportunity? Um, and the court could look at the entirety of the circumstances to see if, if in the circumstances it was reasonable for the suspect to ask for this second call. I mean, we already have case law that if the jeopardy changes, for example, yes. it exists. But even if the jeopardy doesn't change, uh, is there not room for reasonable opportunity to be interpreted in a way that may mean more than one call. You, you see, in answer to Justice Binney, I was interested in your answer, but you immediately went, well, we should introduce a right for counsel to be present under Section 10B. And I'm wondering if there's not an intermediate way for the court to go that uh, would, uh, would meet uh, the concerns you're putting before us. There definitely is, and, and I accept that position uh, with respect uh, of the middle ground. Uh, my, my ultimate objective would be to try to persuade the court to go the final step, in my, and that was a, the purpose of my response to Justice Binney, because I say that there, if you go the middle ground, there's no principled reason in my submission not to go to the end run and permit counsel to attend the interrogation room. But I accept, as I say, with respect, Justice Sharon, uh, the view that there is that middle ground within the existing case law to remedy the situation that occurred in this case, and that is where an individual in the isolated situation of a suspect over a period of two and a half hours makes a number of requests 
for the assistance of counsel, and that those requests are simply denied. If I could take, uh, yes, just. Uh, I'm, I wondered uh, where your suggestion could lead. You pointed out to uh, paragraph 140, and you indicated, or in your view, there is an error from the trial judge when uh, he says that um, the Sinclair was concerned about and confused about, uh, about his, um, the choice he had to make. Uh, the way I see that is maybe that the judgment that he didn't know whether he, what he should answer. And what you're suggesting is that there should be a right for the um, person being interrogated to consult the lawyer as to what kind of answer he should give rather than whether he should continue talking at all. Because this is what the, 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 like the two different yes. possibilities that the judge uh, saw. And so far, the jurisprudence has been that if the person knows that it is his decision to speak or not, he is not overwhelmed, then there is no breach of the right to silence because there is a very close connection between the two. Yes. And you seem to say that no, the person has to have the right to talk to a lawyer in order to decide what he will answer. So it goes to the content of the answer rather than the decision as to whether to speak or not. Yes, I appreciate that point. Réponse. Oui, je comprends ce que vous voulez dire, Madame la juge. Si on interprète l'article 10b de façon assez large, c'est-à-dire le droit de retenir les services de l'avocat et de constituer un avocat, il ne devrait pas y avoir de limite euh, imposée à ce que le suspect veut dire à son avocat pour obtenir des conseils durant le cours d'un interrogatoire. Ça ne devrait pas être le cas. Si on donne toute sa portée au droit à l'avocat, on doit se rappeler que le secret professionnel de l'avocat a toujours été protégé et que tout dépend de la libre circulation d'informations entre les deux. Question. Je crois que nous affirmons que la personne détenue avait le droit d'obtenir des conseils sur la question de savoir s'il devait répondre aux questions ou non, mais je ne me souviens de rien de clair sur la question du droit à consulter l'avocat sur d'autres questions. Réponse. Je vous encourage à réfléchir à cette question dans le cadre de l'interprétation de l'article 10b. C'est ce que je demande. Si l'on examine la jurisprudence, on constate que selon les circonstances et la nature des dossiers, il a été question de l'avocat de l'aide juridique. Mais lorsqu'on se penche sur le droit de retenir les services d'un avocat, ça, c'est le droit d'embaucher un avocat. Et d'autre part, il y a le droit d'échanger des informations avec un avocat. Et l'article 10b n'impose aucune limite à l'échange d'informations qui peut avoir lieu. Donc, si l'on interprète ces mots de façon large, comme ça doit être le cas selon moi en vertu de la charte, 
Alors, ça donne à la personne le droit de demander l'aide d'un avocat dans le cours d'un interrogatoire sans devoir expliquer pourquoi il veut parler à un avocat. Et je comprends ce que vous dites, Madame la juge des champs. Il y a peut-être un sens qui est double dans la conclusion du juge de première instance. Je soutiens que l'interprétation la plus favorable à l'accusé doit être retenue. Et c'est celle que je propose, c'est-à-dire que le juge de première instance a estimé qu'il existait une certaine confusion dans son esprit sur son droit ou son devoir de parler aux autorités. Question. J'aimerais obtenir un éclaircissement sur un sujet. Si la Cour élargissait le droit à l'avocat davantage que ce qui est stipulé dans la jurisprudence, alors cela mènerait au droit pour l'accusé de bénéficier de la présence de son avocat pendant l'interrogatoire. Réponse. Monsieur le juge Wattstein, je soutiens qu'il s'agit d'un résultat logique et un résultat fondé sur les principes pertinents, mais je dis que ce n'est pas la seule solution que la Cour peut adopter. Question, mais quelle peut être l'autre solution si vous dites qu'il n'y a pas de raison en principe de ne pas aller jusqu'au bout de votre logique? Quelles sont les autres solutions? Réponse, je vous invite à répondre en fonction des principes pertinents et cela me mène à l'un des points qui m'opposent à mes confrères de la partie adverse et cela fait intervenir la question de l'équilibre et à cet égard je vous renvoie aux mémoires des intervenants. On vous invite à établir un équilibre entre les intérêts de l'accusé et les intérêts des autorités lorsqu'il s'agit de déterminer la portée de l'article 10b et ce conformément à la décision signe. J'estime que l'analyse est erronée parce que, comme l'a dit Madame la juge Meg Lachlan, dans l'arrêt Prosper qui se trouve à l'onglet 20 de notre recueil condensé, l'article 10b ne contient aucun qu'un terme qui limite sa portée, comme c'est le cas dans l'article 8, par exemple. Et donc, euh, il n'est pas nécessaire de se livrer à cet exercice euh, dans le cas de l'article 10b, comme c'était le cas dans l'article 7, et c'est ce qu'on a dit dans la Racing. On a dit qu'on ne mettait pas suffisamment l'accent sur les intérêts des policiers. Mais ici, on parle de l'article 10b, et la jurisprudence a introduit la notion du caractère raisonnable pour ce qui est du contenu de ce droit, c'est-à-dire que le suspect doit prendre les mesures raisonnables et le policier doit donner à la personne détenue des occasions raisonnables de communiquer avec son avocat. Je soutiens que ce serait une erreur d'aller plus loin, comme euh, mes confrères le suggèrent et comme l'a fait le juge Frankel. Il est 
pas nécessaire de se lancer dans un exercice d'équilibre entre les droits des autorités et de l'accusé. Question. Vous avez déjà reconnu qu'il devait exister certaines limites comme des circonstances urgentes. Comment intégrer ces restrictions à l'espèce? On ne peut pas faire intervenir l'article 1 parce qu'il n'y a pas de loi ici. Donc, euh, cela n'équivaut-il pas à une position absolue que vous préconisez. Je veux comprendre quel sera le résultat de votre démarche. Réponse, Madame la juge, je soutiens que le concept de caractère raisonnable a déjà été intégré dans l'interprétation de l'article 10b par la jurisprudence de la Cour, mais c'est là la limite de l'exercice qui consiste à établir un équilibre entre les droits des autorités et les droits de l'accusé. Oui, il peut y avoir des circonstances urgentes. Question. Désolée de vous interrompre, mais j'ai de la difficulté à vous comprendre. Vous dites qu'il y a une différence entre l'article 8, où on fait intervenir le caractère raisonnable, et l'article 10. Mais là, vous dites que le caractère raisonnable est intégré à l'article 10. Alors, je ne vois pas où réside la distinction entre les articles 8 et 10. Réponse. Dans l'analyse en vertu de l'article 7 ou de l'article 8, on se livre à un exercice exhaustif d'établissement d'un équilibre entre les intérêts de l'État et ceux de l'accusé. Et c'est similaire à ce qu'on retrouve lorsqu'il y a la question de la justification en vertu de l'article 1. Mais ce n'est pas le cas pour l'article 10b. Sinon, on aurait un droit constitutionnel énoncé donc clairement dans l'article 10b, qui serait réduit, restreint, pour répondre aux besoins des policiers, pour faciliter les interrogatoires et pour faciliter l'obtention de preuves. Et c'est ce qu'on propose ici, ce que propose la partie adverse, et je dis que c'est inacceptable. Question. J'ai un peu de difficulté, ça équivaut à dire qu'on est juste un petit peu enceinte, parce que on a cette difficulté avec d'autres articles. Par exemple, l'article 2b, la liberté d'expression peut être tellement vaste qu'il faut absolument faire intervenir l'article 1 et on a donc défini la liberté d'expression de façon un peu moins vaste. Et donc, vous dites qu'il ne faut pas tenir compte d'autres intérêts lorsqu'on détermine la portée du droit. J'ai de la difficulté avec cet argument. Quand est-ce qu'on fait intervenir la notion de l'intérêt de l'État sans que l'article 1 soit invoqué? Réponse. La distinction est très euh, ténue et j'aimerais revenir euh, à l'arrêt Smith et au propos du juge Lamère. Ça se trouve à l'onglet 14 de notre recueil condensé. Je ne trouve pas le passage que je voulais vous citer. C'est plutôt à l'onglet 19. C'est la même décision qui est citée. Et j'espère que ce passage 
sera clair. Cette limite au droit d'une personne arrêtée ou détenue est essentielle puisque sans elle, il serait possible de retarder inutilement et impuniment une enquête et même, dans certains cas, de faire en sorte qu'une preuve essentielle soit perdue, détruite ou impossible à obtenir. Les droits énoncés dans la Charte, et en particulier le droit à l'assistance d'un avocat, ne sont pas des droits absolus et limités. Ils doivent être exercés d'une façon qui soit conciliable avec les besoins de la société. On ne peut pas permettre à une personne arrêtée ou détenue d'entraver le travail des policiers en lui permettant de faire en sorte que ces derniers ne puissent pas effectuer adéquatement leurs tâches. Fin de la citation. Et l'argument que j'avance est conforme à ce passage parce que on ne veut pas empêcher les policiers de mener leur travail d'enquête ou d'interroger des personnes. La société peut accepter ce que nous proposons, c'est-à-dire permettre à la personne d'avoir accès à des conseils juridiques pendant un interrogatoire. Et on ne veut pas non plus empêcher les policiers de faire leur travail, ce qui n'est pas le cas. Et donc, si nous revenons à la jurisprudence, et plus particulièrement à ce passage du juge Le Maire, interrompre un interrogatoire pendant un certain temps pour permettre à la personne interrogée d'obtenir des conseils juridiques, je crois que ce serait tout à fait conforme aux intérêts généraux de la société. Question. Le débat semble porter essentiellement sur la question suivante. Est-ce qu'on nous demande de faire trop de travail? Parce que la question sous-jacente de politique publique porte sur les interrogatoires et c'est souvent la question du caractère volontaire qui tranche ces situations. Et il semble que l'article 10b semble tout à fait conforme à ce principe du caractère volontaire. Réponse. J'aimerais répondre de la façon suivante, et c'est un argument qui a été avancé dans l'arrêt Singh, je crois qu'il existe une différence entre les aveux, c'est-à-dire le caractère volontaire, et l'article 10b, donc le droit à l'assistance d'un avocat. Pourquoi? Parce que le droit garanti par l'article 10b doit servir de bouclier pour une personne qui se trouve dans une situation où elle est complètement isolée. Donc, on doit permettre l'interruption de l'interrogatoire jusqu'à jusqu ce que la personne ait la possibilité de consulter son avocat. Et si, après avoir reçu des conseils significatifs, la personne décide de ne plus parler aux policiers, alors il n'y aura pas de déclaration. Mais en vertu des règles applicables à l'aveu, si cette protection est retirée à la personne par une interprétation limitée de l'article 10b, il y aura une déclaration. Alors la question sera de savoir si cette déclaration est volontaire ou non, mais c'est une analyse qui intervient après le fait. Et donc l'objectif est différent. L'objectif de la règle applicable aux aveux est complètement différent de l'objectif de la règle de l'article 10b voulant qu'une personne ait le droit de consulter son avocat. Question. Alors, qu'en est-il si 
il y a un refus, un refus donc de permettre à la personne de consulter un avocat. Et s'il y a des questions qui sont posées de façon inacceptable à la personne, alors intervient la question du caractère volontaire, parce que si après la consultation initiale avec un avocat, l'accusé répond aux questions de façon volontaire et éclairée, alors pourquoi est-ce que toutes ces réponses devraient être exclues à cause de l'élargissement du contenu de l'article 10b? Réponse. Monsieur le juge Béni, je crois que c'est à cause du concept d'équité dans le cadre d'un interrogatoire, compte tenu du fait que la Cour a avalisé la décision rendue dans l'affaire Clarkson. Pendant cette période d'isolement, donc, le détenu est sous le contrôle de l'État et il doit avoir accès à un avocat à cette étape précise. Et je crois que c'est fondamental dans notre système de justice, ce concept d'équité et d'apparence d'équité aussi dans notre système. L'apparence d'équité rehausse le respect de la population pour le système judiciaire. Et si, dans le cadre d'une interrogation de cinq heures, pendant laquelle une personne demande plusieurs fois de consulter son avocat, si donc cette demande est refusée, alors les gens auront raison de se demander si notre système est juste et équitable. Et c'est une valeur fondamentale. Question. J'ai l'impression que vos préoccupations découlent de l'application de la règle de la racing et découlent aussi de la notion du caractère volontaire et de la façon dont ça a été abordé dans la racing, ce qui a mené à une liberté accrue dont bénéficient les policiers dans le cadre d'interrogations sous garde. Et cela, donc, vous fait craindre que les policiers ont trop de marge de manœuvre et vous voulez restreindre ces enquêtes policières en élargissant le droit garanti par l'article 10B. Donc, c'est une attaque indirecte, en fait, de la racing. Réponse. C'est ce que disent mes confrères et ils vont soulever leurs arguments. Je suis en désaccord. Moi, je soulève une question différente et un article différent de la charte, l'article 10B, et l'objectif est différent. Dans la racing, la question était la suivante. J'ai exercé mon droit au silence, interrompez l'interrogatoire. Dans l'article 10b, il s'agit de fournir l'assistance d'un avocat à l'accusé. Question. Eh bien, bien, sachez que j'étais dissident dans la racing. Réponse. Je vous demande aussi de regarder la décision Burlingham. Nous avons besoin d'assistance sur le sens qu'il faut donner à l'arrêt Burlingham. Nous croyons que cet arrêt comprend la décision, ou plutôt la situation qui est survenue en l'espèce. Oui, il y a des circonstances particulières, mais ce qu'a dit le juge Iacobucci, c'est que la personne avait demandé la possibilité de parler à un avocat 
pendant l'interrogatoire, ça a été refusé et c'est une violation de l'article 10b. Et c'est ce que nous demandons à la Cour de faire ici, c'est d'appliquer la décision Burlingham au fait de l'espèce. Merci. Question. Avant que vous ne terminiez vos arguments, dans l'arrêt Singh, M. Singh n'a-t-il pas abandonné son appel au sujet du caractère volontaire? Réponse oui. Question. Donc, l'arrêt Singh doit être lu à la lumière de ce fait, c'est-à-dire que la plan M. Singh a soutenu qu'il ne contestait pas le caractère volontaire. Ensuite, en l'espèce, ou en tout cas dans l'une des trois affaires que nous entendons aujourd'hui, l'appel portant sur le caractère volontaire a été abandonné à la lumière de la racing. Question oui. La question découlant de la racing a été abandonnée. Merci. Maître Shrek. Merci, Madame la juge en chef. Je comparais au nom de l'Ontario Criminal Lawyers Association, dont les membres fournissent les conseils juridiques auxquels l'article 10b garantit l'accès. Les intimés préconisent une restriction de l'article 10b et selon nous, il s'agit d'une interprétation inacceptable du rôle des avocats qui fournissent les conseils juridiques dans les affaires McCrimmon et Sinclair, les intimés disent qu'une fois que l'accusé a parlé à son avocat, alors l'objectif de l'article 10b est atteint et aucun autre contact avec l'avocat n'est nécessaire ou permis parce que les objectifs de l'article ont été atteints. Si l'on permet à l'accusé de parler à un avocat, c'est pour qu'il soit informé de son droit au silence. Et certaines parties ont même dit que l'article 10b devait être modifié pour faire mention expressément du droit au silence. Mais selon nous, les avocats font bien davantage que de dire aux personnes arrêtées de garder le silence. Parce que si c'était la seule chose que faisaient les avocats, on n'aurait qu'à prévoir un message enregistré qui dirait aux gens de garder le silence, un point c'est tout, et comme ça les gens n'auraient pas besoin de parler à un avocat en personne. L'idée, c'est que les policiers devraient savoir que les gens ont le droit de consulter un avocat à mesure que les choses changent dans le cours d'un interrogatoire. On en a parlé dans l'arrêt Black. Mais si les intimés ont raison à l'espèce, alors quand la nature de l'enquête change, pourquoi faudrait-il que les policiers indiquent à nouveau à l'accusé que l'accusé a le droit de consulter un avocat? Comme l'a dit mon confrère Maître McKinnon, l'article 10 b répond à deux objectifs, comme la Cour l'a dit dans l'arrêt Bartle. D'abord, l'avocat doit expliquer à l'accusé quels sont ses droits. Ensuite, euh, la personne détenue 
pourra recevoir de son avocat des conseils sur la façon d'exercer ses droits. Et les conseils qu'un avocat peut fournir à la personne détenue sur la façon d'exercer ses droits dépendra des circonstances de chaque affaire et dépendra aussi de la nature des informations dont dispose l'avocat. Et ces informations, l'avocat les reçoit de la personne détenue. La quantité d'informations disponibles juste après l'arrestation est bien sûr assez limitée à cause des circonstances. Et l'interprétation proposée par le gouvernement en l'espèce encourage les policiers à ne pas divulguer des informations ou à en divulguer le moins possible tout de suite après l'arrestation, au moment donc où la personne communiquera avec son avocat. Question. Qu'est-ce qui cloche avec les propos du juge Le Maire dans la Smith qu'il faut une possibilité raisonnable de consulter un avocat et que si il y a des changements dans les circonstances, ce droit doit être respecté une deuxième fois. Mais est-ce qu'il faut changer le principe qui avait été retenu pendant toutes ces années? Réponse. Il n'y a rien d'inacceptable dans l'idée que la personne doit avoir une possibilité raisonnable de consulter son avocat, mais ce qui est inacceptable, c'est l'idée voulant qu'une fois que la personne a eu cette possibilité raisonnable de consulter son avocat, une seule fois, alors c'est terminé. Nous ne croyons pas que ce droit cesse d'exister lorsqu'il y a eu une seule consultation avec l'avocat. Et tout dépendra des circonstances de chaque affaire. Question. Alors, vous n'êtes pas d'accord avec Maître McKinnon qui dit que la personne détenue a le droit de bénéficier de la présence de son avocat pendant l'interrogatoire? Réponse. Non, je ne suis pas en désaccord avec cette idée. Question. Alors, il n'y a pas de position intermédiaire. L'article 10b doit inter interpréter comme voulant dire que l'accusé a le droit à la présence de son avocat à ses côtés, point final. Réponse. C'est notre position. Je ne dis pas que cette question ne peut pas faire l'objet de désaccords entre personnes raisonnables, mais je dis simplement que c'est l'aboutissement logique de ce raisonnement. Question. Y aurait-il une autre position qui vous semblerait raisonnable? Réponse. Ce qui est raisonnable, c'est tout ce qui permet à la personne détenue d'obtenir des conseils juridiques quand elle en a besoin pour euh, prendre une décision réelle sur la façon d'exercer ses droits. C'est ça que garantit l'article 10b. Si on donne à la personne détenue la possibilité d'obtenir des conseils sur la façon d'exercer ses droits, selon nous, ça, c'est adéquat. Et ça dépendra des circonstances de chaque affaire. Comme l'a dit la Cour suprême, il n'est pas nécessaire d'analyser en détail l'état d'esprit de la personne détenue pour déterminer si la consultation avec l'avocat est suffisante. On peut présumer que la consultation avec l'avocat a permis d'obtenir des informations adéquates. C'est ce qui a été dit dans l'arrêt Hébert. Toutefois, la qualité des conseils dépendra de l'information dont dispose l'avocat. Et selon l'État, 
lorsque la personne détenue conseille son avocat, il a peu d'informations, la personne détenue plutôt a peu d'informations et donc ne reçoit pas des conseils Exhaustif. Et par la suite, les policiers peuvent recourir à tous les moyens possibles pour persuader la personne détenue de renoncer à son droit au silence en fournissant des informations qui peuvent être vraies ou inexactes. Dans Sinclair, par exemple, on a fourni à la personne détenue des informations sur euh, la solidité des preuves euh, qui existaient et donc euh, que cela devait convaincre euh, M. Sinclair de parler aux policiers. Mais selon nous, cette situation est suffisante pour qu'il ait une nouvelle possibilité de parler à son avocat pour savoir comment exercer son droit. Et c'est ce qui est garanti par l'article 10b selon l'arrêt Bartle. Les policiers peuvent utiliser toutes sortes de moyens de persuasion, mais la, la personne détenue, elle, n'aurait pas le droit de reparler à son avocat pour savoir comment répondre à ses moyens de persuasion. Et nous croyons que cela ne permet pas à la personne détenue de faire des choix volontaires et éclairés. L'État dit que c'est ainsi que doit être interprété l'article 10b pour que les policiers puissent faire leur travail et obtenir des aveux. Mais, pour être réaliste, il faut reconnaître deux facteurs importants selon nous. D'abord, les personnes qui sont interrogées dans des situations comme celle de l'espèce sont vulnérables. Parfois, ces personnes n'ont pas beaucoup d'instructions, ont des problèmes de toxicomanie, de santé mentale. L'anglais ou le français, selon le cas, n'est peut-être pas leur langue maternelle. Et donc, ces personnes ne font pas toujours des choix volontaires et éclairés, ce qui va à l'encontre de leurs intérêts. Des aveux comme ceux prononcés en l'espèce sont suspects et donc euh, révèle le fait que les décisions ne sont pas toujours éclairées. Question. Si vous dites que dès que l'accusé euh, le demande, il a droit à bénéficier de la présence de son avocat dans la salle d'interrogatoire, alors est-ce qu'il faut que les policiers lui disent qu'il a le droit à la présence de son avocat dans la salle même de l'interrogatoire? Réponse. Je ne crois pas pas qu'il faille aller si loin. Je crois que les policiers doivent donner accès à l'avocat. Ensuite, c'est à l'avocat qu'il appartient d'assurer que toutes les informations sont fournies à la personne détenue. Par exemple, l'avocat pourrait dire « Voulez-vous que je vienne au poste de police? » Ou l'avocat pourrait dire « Je crois que je devrais aller au poste de police. » Mais je crois que L'obligation ne devrait pas appartenir aux policiers. Comme je l'ai dit, au lieu de faire une analyse après le fait de la question de savoir si un aveu prononcé dans des situations comme celle de l'espèce est volontaire ou non, compte tenu des risques que cela comporte, la meilleure façon de faire serait d'éliminer le risque en s'assurant que les personnes détenues aient accès à un avocat et en s'assurant que les avocats puissent faire leur travail convenablement, en s'assurant que, à mesure que l'interrogatoire progresse et que la nature de l'interrogatoire change, la personne détenue a les informations nécessaires pour fournir des conseils, des réponses éclairées. Merci. Thank you.
Uh, I appear for the uh, BC Civil Liberties Association, and we do take a slightly different position than the one you've heard so far. We, uh, we do say that the, um, the right is not absolute and that the limits on it are already set out in this Court's jurisprudence and that they need not be tampered with. In other words, the position that the Court has been urging on some of the, the two speakers thus far is one we adopt. Uh, and we say that uh, on the basis that uh, if one examines uh, the purpose of 10b closely, one will see that it is distinguishable and quite distinct from Section 7, uh, right, in the voluntariness principle. And there's been a great deal of confusion between those two things in, in the history of this case. And so I'd like to begin by uh, dissecting the distinction and, and urging you, uh, urging upon you uh, a slightly different interpretation of how to uh, resolve the issues in this case. Uh, firstly, uh, it's a question of interpretation, and we're looking at a statute. And so when doing that, one looks first to the plain meaning of the language that's used. And the, the, the principle, one of the principal issues that's arisen in this case is over the question of whether the, the words on arrest or detention mean a point in time or do they mean a continuum that is throughout the period during which the uh, detainee is detained. Uh, and we say in our factum, we make the point that if you look at the plain meaning of the words, uh, those words on arrest or detention modify both, uh, all three, A, B, and C of Section 10. And in particular, what's uh, informative is 10C, which refers to the habeas corpus right. And it can't be that uh, the habeas corpus right is restricted to that moment uh, on arrest. So we say those words must necessarily apply to the whole period. Um, but that's the plain meaning approach to this. There's also a purposive approach. And it's common ground that that's the main battleground here uh, and the main dispute that we're having. Uh, and we say that the... Uh, the, the decision of the trial judge in the Sinclair case, particularly in the decision of the Court of Appeal, and the position taken by the Crown as respondent in this court, have each misstated the purpose of 10b. And in particular, they make the fundamental mistake of treating the 10b right to counsel as if it were merely an adjunct to the implied right to silence in Section 7. It's not. The confusion can be dispelled by looking at Singh itself. And seeing this court held that the right to silence is coterminous with the common law of all, uh, confession rule. In other words, the focus of the Section 7 right to silence is the voluntariness of the statement. The focus of the 10b right, by contrast, is entirely different and is broader, has a broader reach. As articulated by this court in cases like Bartle and Hebert, the focus of the 10b right is ensuring access to legal advice so that a detainee can make informed choices, including, among other things, uh, whether uh, the choice about whether or not to speak to the authorities. But that's one among many. In summary, the right to silence serves to uh, ensure that a detainee's decision to speak is voluntary, whereas 10b serves to uh, ensure that the detainee's decisions, all of them, are informed. And that's the word that's used in the jurisprudence. They're different things. It's true that, as this court has remarked in the past, chief among the rights on which a detainee needs advice is the right to silence. That's true but certainly not the only matter on which advice may be needed. The cases describing Tenby's purpose speak of a broader interest, an interest in addressing the power imbalance between a detainee and the state that you've heard about. So the advice that a detainee may need will bear on a variety of other issues, such as the prospects for regaining liberty or the consequences of a conviction, just to name a few. 
But even if we focus, if we, as we have been here, just on Tenby's role in supporting the right to silence, the detainee is still entitled to, to more than just the bare advice that such a right exists. Indeed, the police routinely uh, tell the detainee that anyway. Recall that in black, the Crown had argued, as it has here, that the uh, detainee need not need, uh, does not need fresh advice, notwithstanding a change in jeopardy, because the advice of the lawyer would not change. That was the submission. In effect, the Crown asked the court to assume that the lawyer would merely reiterate the same advice not to speak. So nothing new was needed. This court rejected the argument there, as it should here, on the basis that the court ought not to speculate about what counsel's advice was or would be. The decision also made it clear that the advice may well consist of more than just the bare admonition not to speak. But uh, at bottom, I say the principle is vis visibly, uh, vividly illustrated by the trial judge, judge's voir dire decision in St. Clair, which uh, has been referred to already. Uh, and the most important of the findings in this regard, I submit, is, is the one you've heard about in, in paragraph 140 of the judgment. I agree that it's in error and urge you to find it uh, as much. Uh, and, and, and the error lies in the judges having, the, the judges having concluded that uh, Mr. Sinclair, uh, when he asked again to speak to his lawyer before making his confession, he was confused about the choice he had to make, but not about whether it was his choice to make. I say that's pretty clear uh, in the sense that the judge is, is drawing uh, a distinction between whether it's his choice to make, as if that's the only issue on which he requires advice, and the parameters of the decision, the legal and factual issues that will inform the decision that he has to make. In fact, the judge also makes findings of fact, and this Mr. McKinnon didn't, uh, my friend Mr. McKinnon did not allude to, the reasons uh, for Mr. Sinclair's choosing to speak are the subject of factual findings and the judge's reasons. And they're set out in paragraphs 178 and 179 of the judgment, and they're twofold. Mr. Uh, uh, Sinclair concluded uh, the judge finds that, uh, he, that the police had all the evidence they needed to convict him. And at that point, the judge finds that Mr. Sinclair decided he would, quote, get it off his chest, unquote. That's the import of paragraph 178. And in paragraph 179, the judge reiterates the same finding. He's not noting that, again, in the judge's words, when he decided the game was up, he thought he might as well come clean, and he did so. Secondly, in paragraph 179, the judge finds that Mr. Sinclair decided to confess and participate in a reenactment of the offense because he believed, and again, these are the judge's words, the court might look more kindly on him having cooperated. Needless to say, and this is my point about this, counsel's advice would certainly have shed some light on Mr. Sinclair's reasoning on both counts. Um, you are getting a long way into the merits. I let you go on for a while, but you know we don't want interveners really to talk about the merits. So I think you should confine yourself to propositions of, of, of law. No, I, I appreciate that. The, the point was simply to, to, uh, to note how this case serves as an illustration of the distinction between the two uh, uh, modes of inquiry because uh, if, you're, if you're focusing in on the voluntariness rule, that's one set of issues. Uh, it, here, you have it nicely divided because the judge made a finding on voluntariness and, and, and it became subsumed within, uh, the, the 10B issue became subsumed within that and it is distinct and isolated mm -hmm. in the judgment. That's why I refer to the I appreciate that. Judgment. Thank you. But I'll move on. Uh, the, the point from this, though, is uh, 
one has to ask in, in those circumstances whether the choice was truly an informed one as opposed to a voluntary one. Yes, uh, the, uh, if he's confused about the choice he has to make, but not whether it's his to make, the confusion goes to the very issues on which he needs legal advice. So, uh, as I say, that in that case, it's not an informed choice, uh, and uh, uh, at least as required by 10B as it has been interpreted by this court. We submit that the answer is obvious, and a detainee must have a reasonable opportunity to consult with counsel throughout an interrogation because the situation for the de detainee is constantly changing. The information that the de detainee must pro process is constantly growing, and his or her need to reinstruct counsel on the changing landscape persists throughout. To use the words of the Court of Appeal, the right is not exhausted simply because the detainee uh, may have been advised at the outset that he or she need not speak. The perspective, that such a narrow perspective seriously understates the need and the potential value to the detainee of counsel's advice. As we set out in our factum, just to conclude, we accept that the right is not absolute insofar as it is subject to the limitations already enunciated by this Court. Uh, and Principally, principally, these, these uh, limitations have arisen in the context of the initial consultation. And that has been the focus of the debate, but nowhere has it has been laid out that uh, it's just a one-off and after that there's no second opportunity. But that was explored in Smith to some extent. To some extent, but, but um, it, it, I, I, I would submit that the answer to this issue is in black. And if one looks at the, what has been described as an exception that's carved out in black for when you have a change in jeopardy, one has to examine closely what the rationale for that is. Why is it that you would need fresh advice after there's been a change in jeopardy? Well, because there are different legal issues that have arisen um, that uh, require explication, that the, the, the detainee is in need of further advice on those issues. And someone uh, has mentioned already this, uh, this question of change in circumstances. The difficulty with that is that it is difficult to set an objective test without having to intrude into the solicitor-client relationship. And for this court to, ex to pronounce a test uh, that requires an objective standard rather than a, pure, a bona fide uh, uh, subjective test that, that looks to the bona fides of the request for counsel uh, creates problems because then one has to do what this court says it prefers not to do, which is to get into the mind of the, the detainee and ask whether there's a legitimate basis for that person to be seeking legal advice at that particular moment. But with your change of, with your approach to the change of circumstances, that would mean that every time there is new information given to the detainee, he would have to have access to a lawyer yet another time. Yes, as long, and again, it's a question of fact for trial judges as to whether the, the, the request is a legitimate one, a bona fides request, as opposed to a stalling tactic, for example. But that's a familiar situation for this court where it's a matter of uh, assessment by a trial judge to determine what is the nature of the request. But if, we are, if, if, the, if the, this court is going to be true to the promise that the uh, 10B offers, that is to, to allow a detainee to make informed choices, they need the benefit of advice in order to... Uh, to be informed, and uh, one can't arbitrarily say that it's only a one-off single consultation at which that uh, interest is served. Thank you. Mr. Lysis. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning. These three cases 
the Civil Liberties Association respectively submits, ask the court, call upon the court to bring Section 10B into line with what is the reality of modern police investigation tactics. In the constitutional jurisprudence from this court, for example, in Section 8, you have repeatedly confirmed the right of citizens to have the charter keep pace with police investigative tactics, techniques, the march of technology, the employment of new ways to investigate and detect crime, all of which the CCLA recognizes as valid and important. The context of this case and this question, the particular context of this case and these questions is custodial interrogations. And in my respectful submission, that is a unique point of intersection between the citizen and the state, which has not kept pace with the realities of custodial interrogation. I will not go into the merits of the investigation, the interrogation, beyond saying it is evident from a full and fair reading of these interrogations that these are expert, trained, powerful interrogators conducting interrogations designed to deprive individuals of their liberty. That is all they are intended to do, and again, that is a valid objective. But if Section 10B is to fulfill the promise of writing to the extent possible the imbalance between the citizen and the state, it must be given more meaning and more scope, certainly than what my friends on my right-hand side say, and in my respectful submission, more than what has been extended within the context of Section 10B. Justice Abella asks, why is it not enough to have a duty to hold off when there's a discrete change in circumstances or the scope of the investigation? Because, simply put, it isn't enough. It doesn't recognize that in the context of a custodial interrogation where the table is entirely set by the state, where the power of the state over the subject is at its very highest and the vulnerability of the accused is at their very greatest, the one right that can mean the most is, on my friend's formulation of the test, left outside entirely of the interrogation chamber. It's excluded from the process. And a full and fair reading of what happens in these interrogations must, I respectfully submit, give this right more scope. And I will say what the CCLA's position is as to how that is to be done. Second point, to pick up Justice Sharon's point this morning. This is not a request to break new constitutional ground. This is a logical and, in my respectful submission, necessary extension of established principles. Black, Mananen, Evans, Bartle, 
all recognize the obligation on the state to provide meaningful access through Section 10 to counsel. And all of these cases, and this court has established the right, to, the obligation to hold off and the right to have the police hold off. The obligation to hold off until informed of the right. The obligation to hold off after being informed to give an opportunity to exercise that right. The obligation to hold off after that right has been exercised to exercise it with counsel of choice. The obligation to hold off if in the context of the interrogation there is a change a discrete and fundamental nature in the change in scope of the investigation. The, the obligation to hold off, that animating aspect of Section 10 is already there. And to extend it further into the particular context of custodial interrogation, which I respectfully submit is a unique point of intersection between citizen and state, is both logical and necessary. What does that mean? We're not recrossing Rubicons to retrieve fallen flags, as one of my friends said, that fell in sing. We are not trying to turn custodial interrogations into an examination for discovery process with refusals. We are trying to strike a balance. And what that means is that where there is a continuing request for counsel, bona fides, because of a need to speak to counsel, a desire to speak to counsel, an inability to reach counsel, that must be given due and independent weight within the context of an interrogation. And what we see in these cases is the right to counsel is consistently invoked in various contexts. I want to speak to my lawyer. I want to understand the evidence. It was only a minute. And it is reframed, deflected, brushed off, flat out denied. Section 10 is an independent right. It is not a supporting right to Section 7. It is not the right to remain silent. It is an active right to to get access to resources that will, to some degree, moderate that fundamental power imbalance in the interrogation room. It is not too much to ask to have counsel participate in that process. And there is no magic formula, magic incantation of circumstances, which can redress that balance. In the absence of legislation, it is going to have to be judge-made, but Section 10 has to be given real teeth. This court in Singh, the majority and the dissent, recognized that Section 7 and Section 10 are different. Section 10 is a fundamentally active, engaging, continuing, passive right. Mr. Lysis, you, you provided us with a list of the kinds of factors you think we, the court should consider in deciding whether or not a 10B right has been breached. Uh, looking over those factors, can you think of a single time when, based on these factors, it, the police would not accede to a request to have counsel? One factor that I don't think is in there that I wrote in and should be is the absence or presence of exigent, exigent circumstances. Other than exigent circumstances, based on this list, it seems to me that what what is a clear declaration and maybe 
that's exactly what you want it to come down to, is that every time there is a request by counsel, it should be honored yes, during that, an interrogation. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean that the lawyer has to come and sit next to the accused and uh, instruct, don't answer, or, or we'll get back to you on that. It means that there has to be a genuine, it's an extension of the implementational duty to facilitate access to counsel. It will often mean the duty to suspend, to permit an informed uh, interaction with counsel. In the Sinclair case, the man spoke to his lawyer for a minute or so and repeatedly told the policeman, I, I need to speak to my lawyer, I don't understand. The response was to fabricate DNA evidence for the purpose of conveying the futility of speaking to counsel. That, in my respectful submission, is not how Section 10B should work. How, how does the, the, you say, bona fide uh, request to speak to counsel, uh, you've used other adjectives, genuine, um, how is that to be determined? The police have to put it into, into operation. They have to know when to suspend, and courts have to, to know as well what was genuine or bona fide. My, my query is how to determine that without going into the no-go zone of inquiry. Well, why do you want to speak to your lawyer? What do you want to say to your lawyer that he hasn't, you know, what do you want to ask him that you haven't asked him yet? Those questions could not be asked. No, and I think that no-go no zone has to be sedulously uh, fostered and, and, and protected, but where you have an accused who is not obstructive, who is uh, cooperative, who says at the invocation of the interrogation, as this man did, Sinclair, at the outset, I don't want to speak to you. I want to speak to my lawyer. I haven't been able to speak to him. In circumstances of a particular case, perhaps I can go further. But this is a theme that continues in this interrogation. And when you have the, the, the initial and continued uh, invocation of the right to counsel, it's very easy, I respectfully say, for the, the, the courts to say that is a continuing bona fide assertion uh, of that right. Will there be cases where it is not clear? Yes, that's what trials are for. But well, that, that's when. What's the difference? And, and why should there be a difference? If the intent of the suspect is to obstruct the interrogation, I mean, that's a valid objective on, on his part, surely. I, I think it's very difficult to characterize the assertion of a right to counsel as an attempt, as an attempt to obstruct uh, an investigation. But if, for instance, uh, there has been a waiver of the right that is uh, free and informed and the in interview gets going and there is a sophisticated accused well, uh, who, who is well aware of his rights, who is uh, engaging in the process and understands well the situation and things get a little hot and there's a quick invocation of the right to counsel, that is a factor a court may look at. But that's not, that's not these three cases. Uh, we don't want to get in the cases in your time, up. Thank you very much. Ms. DeWitt Van Osten. Chief Justice, Justices, I'm going to um, start uh, this morning by speaking to the interpretation of Section 10B and the reasons why the respondent says the appellant's propositions that he advances today should be 
um, rejected. My colleague, Ms. Brown, will then uh, follow up and speak to the application of the legal principles to the facts on this particular appeal. As you will have noticed from uh, the respondent's written material, we um, oppose both of the propositions being advanced here today, and there are two distinct propositions. One is that Section 10B guarantees continuing access to counsel, or as the appellant has framed it in his factum, a right that can be exercised whenever and wherever the client needs legal assistance. It is also the respondent's position that Section 10B does not guarantee as a constitutional entitlement the right to have counsel present during a custodial interview. The appellant has provided this morning a number of reasons why he says it is time for this court to redefine Section 10B or broaden its scope. My role is to provide the court with a number of reasons why it should not move in that direction. And I'm going to focus primarily on three issues. One is the purpose of the right as established through the jurisprudence. The second is the workability of the appellant's proposals. And uh, third is the importance of the voluntariness rule uh, in assessing the merit of the appellant's position. It is the respondent's position that the purpose of Section 10B has been defined by this court on repeated occasions. And it is uh, a limited right in the sense that, as Justice Lemaire made it clear in Smith, it has to be construed and applied in a manner that is reconcilable with the needs of society. And that was the basis upon which the court read into the right the requirement of due diligence. It is not an absolute right, and it must be looked at both in terms of the manner in which it's applied, the context in which it arises, and with reference to other <laughs> your, specific... Uh, your reading of the jurisprudence of our court it doesn't seem uh, to entirely reflect what was held in uh, Bartle and uh, Burlingham. You seem to be, to be giving a very narrow reading. Uh, in my respectful submission, I'm not giving it a narrow reading. The respondent's position is that if we look at all of these cases in their entirety, and there have been many cases in which comments have been made about the extent or scope of the Section 10B right, that what emerges from that is a consistent theme, and that is that it has been screw, uh, construed as a, um, a guarantee for a detainee to have the opportunity to consult with legal counsel without delay following arrest or detention at the front end of the investigative process so that he or she can obtain preliminary legal advice on the detainee's rights and obligations. It has also been said on more than one occasion that the principal function of counsel contacted in exercise of that right is to inform the detainee of the right to silence. That doesn't mean that the right is not re-engaged in certain circumstances during the course of the interaction. And starting with this court's decision in Black, as affirmed in Evans, the court made it very clear that Section 10B is re-engaged when there's a fundamental and discrete change in the nature of the investigation. And that has been defined as a change in related to another or unrelated offense. 
Before you get more deeply into Birmingham, I wonder if uh, we could uh, pursue somewhat your um, statement in your factum, which I think is correct, that uh, 10b has to be interpreted contextually. So if we begin with the text of the section, um, we find that everyone has the right on arrest or detention. And your proposition, as I understand it, is that uh, that is a right which uh, arises and ends at the moment of arrest and detention, rather than that it is a triggering condition. Two problems with that approach. The first is, as already been point out, pointed out, everyone has the right on arrest or detention to have the validity of the detention determined by way of habeas corpus. Well, certainly, that right exists at any time during the detention. I think you'd agree with that. Yes. All right. The second problem is the French version of the code, which doesn't say au moment, but en cas. And that means in the case of arrest or detention. Now, now if you start with that, if you consider that an accused or detained person or any other person has a right to, count, to consult with counsel throughout the legal process, after the detention, during the trial, before seeing the police, why on a purposive interpretation of 10b should the court hold that when the accused is most vulnerable during police interrogation, that right does not exist? Justice Fish, first of all, um, although the respondent certainly says that the words on arrest or detention are a factor for consideration in the course of the purposive analysis because its linguistic context is important, we're not saying that the right starts and ends with the moment of arrest or detention. The right is triggered by arrest or detention. Our position is that the right um, crystallizes and fulfills its purpose. The right in Section 10b, not the other aspects of Section 10, but the right in Section 10b as interpreted, interpreted crystallizes and fulfills its purpose once the detainees had a meaningful opportunity to consult with counsel. It may be, depending on the circumstances, that that is immediately following arrest or detention. It may be that, however, it occurs somewhat later because the obligation is to facilitate access uh, to counsel in a meaningful way. And so you will see, for example, in some of the cases, apart from Evans and uh, Black, where we talk about a change in circumstances, there are other cases in which a, um, the court has found at the appellate level that the right um, hasn't been completed, notwithstanding a first call with a lawyer. And the situations in which that arises are, generally speaking, where there's an indication on the record, either that in exercise of the right through the first contact, the detainee actually did not get legal advice because the lawyer, for whatever reason, may have said, I'm not prepared to speak to you. Or there's evidence on the record that the detainee uh, is confused about um, the right, the right itself, or confused about 
um, his rights or obligations vis-a-vis -vis the authorities. And so in those circumstances, the court has said, in fact, the record establishes there wasn't a meaningful opportunity to consult with counsel in exercise of the 10B right, even though there was a telephone call or contact and we find a breach. Uh, but for, it, uh, for example, after four hours, let, let's say that the, that the detainee has been interrogated for four hours, has made several requests to be returned to the, to the cells. Would he be entitled to uh, call a lawyer and ask, is it right to, to, to do the death? Am, am I entitled to return to the, to the cells? Are they, are they entitled to keep, uh, to keep uh, interrogating me? Our position is that apart from the scenario in Evans and Black, and apart from those situations in which the record establishes that, in fact, the detainee did not have a meaningful opportunity to consult in exercise of the 10B right, in all other circumstances, the detainee may ask for it to speak to uh, a lawyer again, and the police may well decide to facilitate that opportunity. I'm talking about entitlement. I'm not talking about police discretion in this uh, respect. Yes, and that was the next step in my answer, which is, but the police are not constitutionally obliged or mandated by 10, 10B to facilitate that opportunity. And if, at the end of the day, repeated requests for counsel um, are denied through the course of a custodial interview, that is a factor for consideration in my respectful submission that the trier of fact can take into account quite legitimately under the voluntariness analysis because it may stand for a cogent submission that the will of the detainee was ultimately overborne. And that brings me uh, really to the second point that I wish to make uh, in support of our So you're bringing us to, in a certain way, collapsing Section 7, voluntariness, and Section 10B, while in Singh, at least the majority reasons, attempted to untangle them. No, I don't believe I'm asking for that. Actually, what I'm suggesting is I fully appreciate Section 10B and Section 7 are separate and distinct. The respondent's position is that 10B has a limited purpose, with the exceptions that I've noted in terms of um, Evans, Black, and the other scenarios, that the voluntariness rule has a specific role to play and that one of the factors for consideration under the voluntariness rule is, as this court acknowledged in both Oikel and Singh, repeated denial for the access of counsel, but that 10B is not intended and was never intended to fill the gap. And that's what the respondent's position here is. Although we hear today about a proposive approach to Section 10B and we hear about language of the right to counsel and making informed choices. So what? in the end there would, there would be a constitutional gap between arrest and the point where the voluntariness rule would be tri triggered. There is no constitutional gap in my respectful submission. Section 10B has a very specific role and purpose to play. The right to silence has a very specific role to play, which um, extends throughout the interaction. And the voluntariness uh, rule, the confessions rule, also extends into the custodial interview process. And those in combination 
with other procedural and substantive safeguards that a detainee is entitled to provides an adequate and fair rubric under, under which to ensure fair treatment and to assess both voluntariness and whether rights were afforded under Section 10B. I have a question you said earlier um, that uh, if there's repeated requests to, to speak to a lawyer in the context that we're dealing with, or, um, that this would be a factor to determine whether the will of the suspect has been overborne. So that's my question to you. In Singh, uh, the majority of this court indicated that the voluntariness rule has evolved and has incorporated charter, uh, charter uh, notions, uh, including the right to silence. Uh, in your view, um, by, by saying that, you seem to equate that with oppression. And that's my question to you. Um, the, the, the full meaning of voluntariness as defined in OICL, does it not go beyond the common law traditional notion that there was oppression, threats, and inducements? Um, I suppose the bottom line is, that, uh, do you say voluntariness is not made out, um, I'm sorry, voluntariness is made out unless there is a, a moral disintegration of the suspect? Is that, is, it seems to me that... No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that in OICL and as recognized by this court in Singh, the voluntariness rule is applied contextually, uh, which means that uh, it's an objective standard applied to the circumstances of each case as a whole, but also accounts for the vulnerabilities, the idiosyncrasies, the personality of the detainee. And in OICL, uh, the court recognized that in that contextual assessment, one of the factors that a court can take into account in deciding whether ultimately the detainee was deprived of his or her freedom of choice, the exercise of free will, one of the factors that the court could consider is denial to access to counsel. So there may well be situations in which when you have a set of circumstances and a detainee is asking for second or third opportunities to speak to counsel and those are denied, that a trier of fact on the circumstances as a whole, both objectively and taking into account the vulnerabilities of the detainee, arrives at the position where in fact he or she has a reasonable doubt. And, and keep in mind that's the threshold, a reasonable doubt on whether or not this individual um, voluntarily chose to speak to the police. And I say that that rubric is adequate because the alternative is, if we accept the appellant's propositions, a completely unworkable application of Section 10B. And I'd like to just quickly um, turn to that. Sorry, but before you do, I'm thinking about the change of circumstance uh, issue that you quite properly allude to. Um, in the course of an interrogation, particularly a lengthy interrogation, as we have in this case, uh, factors may enter uh, into the decision whether or not the detainee should exercise his or her right to counsel. Those factors may not have been present at the moment of arrest. For example, the introduction by the police officers of evidence that they may have in their possession. In that light, 
on what principle should the detained person be prevented from consulting with counsel as to his or her rights in light of the changed circumstances? And before you answer, let me give you a concrete issue that arises, used to in the past. Um, and that is where a detainee, knowing that the police have some evidence, wishes to uh, provide the police with additional information, hoping to uh, obtain some favor, but wishes to do so in a manner that will not be used against or cannot be used against the detainee. For example, pursuant to a promise. Why should a detainee uh, be deprived of counsel in that regard? And how would that, that uh, the only, I mean, and one argument, I'm sure you may have others, is to say that if the detainee exercises uh, his or her right to counsel in the particular context I mentioned, the police will not obtain an incriminating statement uh, from that person. But that's the point of the protection, for the accused to know that he or she isn't bound to give one. I have two comments to make in response to that, uh, to that Justice Fish. One is that if one follows through on the jurisprudence of Section 10B, um, Section 10B has never been defined uh, as having the purpose of which to inform the detainee on which choice to make or what is the wiser choice. The purpose of 10B is to provide a detainee with a reasonable opportunity to seek advice on the fact that he or she has a choice. Second of all, there are a number of policy reasons in my respectful submission that should caution the court um, against um, expanding the scope of 10B, uh, including uh, to the situation where the police come forward with new information or where they, they give different information about the offence during the course of the custodial interview such that the evidence against the accused begins to build, build up and it impacts on him or her. And that is um, the point that I was going to move you into, which is the workability. Uh, well, and I'm going to stop you on your first point because I think that you, uh, I say this in the kindest, most respectful way, have confused decision with advice. It is correct to say that counsel do not make the decision for the accused, whether the accused ought to speak with the authorities or not. But counsel are certainly entitled to advise the accused not to speak to the police. Do you not accept that? Are you, are you suggesting that that is not proper legal advice? No, Justice Fish, and I understand that legal advice takes a wide variety of forms. Um, if I'm confused about that issue, it's a confusion that, in my respectful submission, emerges out of the language of the jurisprudence, which well, is... We're grateful for this opportunity to remove any confusion that may exist in that regard. The, uh, the language uh, of the court in relation to 10B has been about affording a reasonable opportunity to seek advice on legal rights and obligations vis-a-vis -vis the authorities. On legal rights and obligations vis-a-vis -vis the authority. Not advice generally. 
but it has actually been limited to legal advice on rights and obligations. The principal function of counsel, the main function of counsel, the primary function of counsel has repeatedly in the context of Section 10b been focused on the provision of advice about the right to silence. So legal advice generally notionally as a concept is far broader. I don't take issue with that. But what the court is being asked to do here is uh, affirm or uh, according to the appellant essentially redefine the purpose of Section 10b and that purpose has up to this point been a relatively limited purpose. To go beyond that um, renders the application of 10b unworkable and I'm just going to move to that issue right now if I can. The only way, in my respectful submission, the appellant's propositions will work here is if they are all or nothing. There is no halfway in between. And the reason I say that is because in order for 10b to um, work effectively, and we can see that through the development of both the implementational components and the informational components, they have to be concrete. They have to be concrete so that those who have the obligation to facilitate access and um, apply the right understand uh, when they need to do it, how they need to do it, and when it comes to an end. And the suggestions that have been made today are uh, of how to temper that and how to provide it with a context by which um, there are some occasions and when it should be reengaged and some occasions when it should not are from, from the respondent's um, submission unworkable. If we Isn't look- is that inherent and reasonable opportunity? Judgment call? Well, reasonable opportunity, um, Justice Spinney, in my respectful submission, is a reasonable opportunity to consult with counsel in exercise of the 10B right at the outset of the investigative process on arrest or detention. And it may be that the circumstances surrounding the exercise of that right at that point are, are such that ultimately the detainee has not been given a reasonable opportunity. But it doesn't uh, extend so far in my respectful submission to say that each time um, a question arises, the detainee should be given a reasonable opportunity to exercise the right. No, but I'm just saying, when you say the rule has to be hard and clear, even if, on your view, it's limited to the outset, there is still a judgment call on the part of the police as to whether a reasonable opportunity has been afforded. So there will be judgment calls, uh, whether it's limited to the outset or not. Yes, and those have been tempered or qualified so far in the jurisprudence through um, the exercise of due diligence on the part of the detainee uh, and with respect to counsel of choice, the um, reasonable availability of the counsel. So yes, there is a certain um, aspect of judgment call, but if we look at what is being proposed here today and we look at, for example, the submissions of the um, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, they're suggesting that a further opportunity to consult um, should occur when there is a genuine and diligent assertion of a desire to speak to counsel, a bona fide foundation for the detainee wanting to speak, an expression of a legal question, vulnerability on the part of the detainee. And I ask the court to consider 
keeping in mind that each time the court revisits Section 10B, particularly in terms of either reconsidering informational or implementational duties or the scope of the right, we're not simply talking about custodial um, interviews. We're talking about 10B applied across the board in every circumstance in which it is engaged. And that includes roadside stops. That includes impaired driving investigations. That includes investigations where there's not going to be an interview. These are criteria that are very nuanced, that are complex, that are difficult to know when or when not they're in engaged. And it, in my respectful submission, it's very difficult for a police officer to make that determination. The um, BC Civil Liberties Association uh, has suggested that, sorry, the Criminal Lawyers Association suggests that 10B guarantees a further opportunity to speak with counsel um, in the sense that it guarantees as much access to counsel as is required for counsel to be able to fully advise the detainee as to how to exercise his or her rights. Again, I do not know how a police officer is going to be in a position to make that assessment, which is why the need to keep the right concrete in my respectful submission is so important. And concerns that arise in situations like the case at bar, where there are repeated requests and no follow through on that request, are better assessed in my submission in the context of the voluntariness rule. And I just want to turn to that briefly because I want to make sure that um, I allow my uh, colleague sufficient time to address her issues. If we step back from the materials that were filed uh, on this appeal by the appellant and the interveners in support, and we step back from the appellant's submissions here this morning, and we ask ourselves what really lies at the heart of this complaint? What really drives the request to, and I say it is a request to fundamentally expand the parameters of Section 10B? What lies behind it? It is predominantly driven, in my submission, by concerns about the custodial interview process. It is primarily driven by concerns about the latitude afforded to police in their attempts to attain a statement, and this is readily apparent from their materials. In the appellant's factum, he talks at length about the police using their extraordinary power of detention and arrest for an improper and abusive purpose, an incommunicado interrogation until there's an inculpatory statement. The Criminal Lawyers Association, access to counsel under 10B is necessary to restore balance to the relationship. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association, 10B must have the capacity to respond to a process of rapidly escalating state power and rapidly increasing vulnerability for the accused. It has to be able to address prolonged, sophisticated, pressurized, and manipulative custodial interrogations. The BC Civil Liberties Association, a broadened scope is necessary because police employ highly skilled interrogators, tested techniques for psychological manipulation intended to maximize discomfort, confusion, a sense of powerlessness. Those arguments, in my respectful submission, and I do not wish to denigrate the legitimacy of those concerns, those arguments were arguments that were advanced 
before this court in the Singh decision. They are arguments that are squarely aimed at the interrogation um, power of the police. They are arguments that are more properly reconciled in my submission through the common law confessions rule. And this court in Singh held that the common law confessions rule provides a fair and reasonable rubric on which to make that assessment. That includes, of course, the ability to take into account a repeated denial of a request for access to counsel. This appeal and the appellant's propositions, I suggest to the court, is an attempt to circumvent the effect of the Singh ruling. It is about allowing a detainee who can no longer stop the interview process by saying, I don't want to speak to you, to stop the interview process by saying, I want to speak to a lawyer. Because there are no parameters around the exercise of that assertion in my respectful submission once there's been an opportunity to consult with counsel that allow it to be workable or concrete. And what it comes down to, uh, and uh, with great respect to the appellant's position, is that this um, request that is before the court is not about ensuring that a detainee makes an informed choice on whether to speak. It is about ensuring that the choice is made for the detainee by legal counsel. And it does not respect a fundamental value that underlies both the right to silence and the right to counsel, and that is the exercise of free will. Underlying the position put forward by the appellant in my submission is um, an assumption that when someone speaks to police, it could only possibly be the product of confusion or misunderstanding the right or a will that is overborne. As this court recognized uh, in um, the decision of Singh that sometimes people choose to speak for their own reasons, that sometimes they choose to speak because they have a crisis of conscience or they choose to speak um, because they have a change of heart. And in my respectful submission, the position put forward by the appellant today no longer treats Section 10B as a shield. It actually turns it into a sword, and that overshoots in a very real way, in my submission, the established purpose of this right and what the framers of the Charter intended it to accomplish. I, I have one question which, in some respects, goes back to the question put to you earlier by Justice LaBelle. Um, I think you'll agree that in the course of an interrogation, uh, various legal questions may arise, various questions in respect of which an accused may seek legal advice. For example, do I have the right to have my lawyer present? Um, do I have the right to be returned to my cell? Can they keep asking me these questions even though I've told them that I don't want to speak to them? What is the effect of the photographs shown to me? And I open a parenthesis. There was a specific 
request by the accused in that regard. I want my lawyer to see these photographs. Now, is it your proposition that with respect to all those legal issues upon which the accused may need advice, he's to obtain it from the police? No, Justice Fish. It's my position. At all. It's my position that if the detainee has been afforded a reasonable opportunity to consult with counsel on his rights or obligations, and we presume, the law presumes, that he has been provided with advice in that regard, then the implementational duties well, of the police... Well, you were saying a little earlier, with respect, that it would be a general consultation about his rights in uh, deta detention, and you seem to be say saying that we have to presume that he will have re uh, received at the outset all legal uh, advice that might be relevant in respect of everything that might occur during the uh, custodial interrogation. What I'm suggesting is that the law presumes, and this is what the jurisprudence supports, that during the consultation with counsel at the outset, the detainee will have received appropriate advice on his or her rights and obligations vis-a-vis -vis the police, primarily in respect of the right to silence, which is the principal issue that works its way through the custodial interview. And if, at the end of the day, circumstances arise where repeated denials to access counsel on further opportunities. Whichever way we turn around this, I think I, I have a sense, speaking for myself, that your position deep down is that the right to counsel is a one-time right which is exercised at the start of the process as, and essentially limited to the question of uh, whether am I entitled to keep my mouth shut. It is my position um, that if the detainee is given an opportunity at the outside of the investigation, even if it's only one, and it's a meaningful opportunity to consult with counsel, then subject to the application of Black or Evans or evidence on the record that the detainee does at, either didn't get advice or doesn't understand that advice, yes. Section 10B is spent. So there is no right to legal advice during the interrogation, absent one of the narrowly interpreted, interpreted exceptions in lack of change of circumstances. And I understand that for your change of, in, in, of circumstances would be essentially limited in the change in the charges being contemplated. Yes, it is the respondent's position that Section 10B does not guarantee an ongoing access to counsel for the purpose of seeking legal advice. I, I note you have uh, nine and a half minutes left. I know you've been asked a lot of questions, but you did want to save some time for your friends, so I leave it up to you. I will uh, allow Ms. Brown to um, speak at this point. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, 
Uh, in the time remaining, I'd just like to highlight some of the aspects of the record in the Sinclair case for this Court's consideration of my learned friend's proposal about um, the expansion of Section 10B in this case. And I'd like to just highlight three aspects of the record. The first is uh, what the respondent submits is police compliance with Section 10B of the Charter in this case. The second is some of the context surrounding the um, appellant's requests for counsel in the course of the custodial interview. And the third has to do with the voluntariness of the appellant's statements and the trial judge's comments in respect of the voluntariness of the statements. Uh, firstly, it's the, the respondent's position that as the law currently stands, there were no infringements of the right to counsel in this case. The appellant was advised that he was under arrest for the murder of Gary Grice, and he was given an opportunity upon his arrest to consult with counsel of his choice, who was a lawyer who had represented him in the past on other matters. Uh, he, in the end, spoke to this lawyer on two occasions. Um, it was, in fact, the police who initiated the second contact with the lawyer because um, the police were concerned that the lawyer was not going to come to the, or questioning whether the lawyer was going to come to the detachment to speak to Mr. Sinclair, so they called him. The lawyer advised he was not planning to come to the detachment, but asked then that the appellant be put back on the telephone. The appellant was put back on the phone and had a second conversation with counsel. And after speaking with counsel, the appellant told the police that he was satisfied with his opportunity to consult. So it's the Crown's position that there was full compliance with both the informational and the implementational component um, of Section 10B. The trial judge concluded that on the voir dire, concluded that the appellant was aware of his right not to speak to the police and also, the trial judge noted that it became apparent in the course of the interview that at least some of the advice the appellant received was with respect to police tactics, uh, because he told Sergeant Skrine, his lawyer, had told him that the police would lie and also had told him to be wary of um, cell plants. The second aspect of the evidence I'd like to highlight is uh, the, the context of what the appellant characterizes as his request to speak to a lawyer. And in his fact, and my learned friend makes mention of a number of occasions where the uh, appellant said things such as, I want my lawyer to look through that. Uh, I want to talk to my lawyer about that. And it's the Crown's position that effectively what the appellant was doing in this situation was ex exercising his right to silence. I would make the point that on um, a couple of occasions, the appellant indicated to Sergeant Scrine that he wanted to hear what he had to say. And I've, I've included some excerpts in the condensed book at tab 12. This is the respondent's green condensed book. And the first excerpt is at page 4. So just to orient that, that's at the very beginning of the interview. And Sergeant Scrine is saying to the appellant that he should be telling the appellant what he has to say. The appellant says, sorry, Sergeant Scrine says, because at the end of the day, and the appellant says, I want to hear what you have to say. It's perfect. I'm not going to deny you that, right? I'm sorry, you're, you're in your condensed book at what? I'm sorry, I'm in the condensed book at tab 12. 12. Yes, and the first excerpt there is at page 4 of the um, custodial interview. And really, I'd, I'd identify the, the fifth line down there where 
the appellant says, I want to hear what you have to say. And I'm not going to deny you that. And the second excerpt I have, it occurs at page 25 of the custodial interview. And about the middle of the page, the appellant says to Sergeant Scrine, I know your job's a hard one, and I know this is a very serious charge. Yeah, that's why I'm giving you the time of day. Okay, and excellent, right, and I appreciate that. What I'm going to say to you or not say to you, I have to, I don't know yet. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and as long as you keep an open mind and listen to what I have to say, I'll hear what you have to say. And the last excerpt that I've included there is um, on page 58, where the appellant then, at the very last line there, exercises his right to silence, says, I just heard everything you have to say. So in, in the Crown submission, the appellant was a willing participant in this exchange to the extent that he was prepared to hear what the police had to say. In other words, he wanted to know what the police knew. And at no time in the interview did he ask to be taken back to his cell, and at no time in the interview did he ask that the interview be stopped so he could speak to his counsel. This point doesn't make any difference to the appellant's analysis. The appellant would say, nonetheless, these statements are admissible on his construction of Section 10B. Uh, but I just pointed out to, um, to make the point that the appellant's construction of Section 10B would work to exclude statements in circumstances where the accused has not, in fact, made a request in the course of the interview for an opportunity to consult, but rather is indicating that, at least for the time being, he wants to exercise his right to silence. And I'd also just make the point here that um, if the appellant's argument were ex accepted, that the police were required to halt the interview um, at the first request of the uh, appellant to consult with counsel and the interview were required to be suspended until the Monday, that would have occurred before the police provided any information to the appellant about the fact that they had found the body and before the police had provided any information to the appellant that they had a statement from TB um, about his confession to TB about killing the victim. So it would have been very early in the process, is my point, uh, very early in the interview that the suspension of the interview would have occurred and none of this information would have been provided to the appellant. And the last point I uh, would like to make is with respect to the voluntariness. And on this appeal and in the court below, the appellant does not contest the voluntariness of his statements. He agrees the statements were the product of his exercise of free will, that they were taken in circumstances that were fair to him, and the police did not act improperly in obtaining them. And I would point out that the appellant uh, did not testify on the voir dire. In his ruling on the voir dire, and there's been some reference uh, to the trial judge's ruling on the voir dire in this case earlier this morning, I would just point out that the trial judge made certain findings of fact, uh, one being that the appellant clearly understood that it, his right was to remain silent and whether to choose, it was his choice whether to speak or not, uh, that he was alert to uh, the sorts of ruses that Sergeant Scrine was using, that he held his own, those are the trial judge's words, he held his own with Sergeant Scrine and challenged him on many occasions with the comments that he made. And with respect to the right to choose, what the trial judge concluded was that the police did not put any limits on when the appellant had to choose. 
In other words, they didn't force him to make a choice. The trial judge noted that simply because someone changes their mind does not mean that their will has been overridden or overborne. And there's been some reference this morning to paragraph uh, 140 of the trial judge's reasons for judgment. And the statement there that he was satisfied that what the appellant was concerned about and confused about was the choice he had to make, not whether it was his choice to make. And the Crown, uh, I'm echoing my colleague's comments, but it's the Crown's position that's a correct statement. The choice is for the appellant to make. Uh, it is not for counsel to make. And the last point I'd like to make in the 23 seconds I have left is that the trial judge in this case did, in fact, make reference to this court's decision in OICL um, and the comments there that denial of access to counsel can um, affect the voluntariness of the statement. And if we just direct the court to tab 13 of the respondent's condensed book. The first page contains an excerpt of uh, the reasons for judgment where the trial judge is discussing OICL. And then I've included there uh, paragraph 169. It's page 56 of the ruling. Uh, there, the judge says he's satisfied that he understood his choice was what, what his choice was, and the police were not obliged uh, to give him a further opportunity. The trial judge says many times the police do, and it may be a good tactic. The advice is not going to change very much. Over the top of the next page, the police still have an opportunity to continue with the investigation, and it reduces to an argument on a voir dire. But again, it is not something... Uh, that they are required to do by law. In some cases, depending on other circumstances, it might be sufficient to tip the balance against the admissibility of a statement, but it does not do so in this case. So there is recognition there by the trial judge that that is a factor to consider on voluntariness. It wasn't a factor in this particular case, but the trial judge notes the police uh, run the risk when they don't allow access to counsel that the statement will be declared involuntary. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the court will rise for its morning recess. <clears throat> Mr. Schermacher. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice, uh, Justices. The appellants seek to alter the balance uh, that now exists between state and individual interests uh, that has been arrived at uh, through judgments of this court. In our factum, we set out a matrix that captures or purports to capture many of the protections that now exist for a detainee subjected to police questioning. And at tab one, of our condensed book, and I, and I will be referring to the condensed book, if I may. At tab one, we, we replicate that matrix. I'm here simply to urge caution if this court is going to consider the rules in other jurisdictions in response to the appellant's request for the existing balance to be altered. I wish to make two or I wish to make two, put forward two broad propositions um, as a backdrop to the remarks that I will make, and, and I'll have some detailed remarks about some of the provisions that are in the book. First of all, any examination of other criminal law systems must be contextual. 
uh, one must see the whole, or at least consider that there is a whole, and not just single parts of the other system. And secondly, that we should not be surprised to find that in other jurisdictions there are significant differences in the rules there compared to the rules that we have. If I can take you to tab two of the condensed book, you find the passage from the judgment of Justice Leroux Dubay with which we concluded our factum. She makes the point, this is from the Thompson newspapers case, and she makes the point, I've underlined it, to look at each piecemeal through a magnifying glass cannot provide an accurate picture of the whole. It's a sensible proposition in my respectful submission, but it's an important one. Now, so, so that's as to context. As to the expectation of differences, I have a couple of excerpts from judgments from this court. At, at tab three, you find uh, Justice Laforet in the same case in Thompson newspapers speaking about how the various common law countries have approached the balancing of interests in rather different ways. At tab, at tab four in, in, in the Harar case, Justice Laforet echoes his remarks in Thompson newspapers and says different balances may be achieved in different countries. And again, we're talking about the balancing of state interests and individual interests. And at tab six, Justice McLaughlin, as she then was, observes the reality that different countries apply different rules to evidence gathering. What I would like to do, if I may, is spend the few minutes that I have looking at some of the specific rules in some of these other jurisdictions that the appellants ask you to consider. At tabs uh, 6 to 11 of the condensed book, you find excerpts from the law in England and Wales, and, and I hope this isn't uh, tedious for you. Uh, I, I think it is important to look at, at some of the specific provisions. In England and Wales, I've marked the relevant passages. There's a statutory right to counsel set out in, in the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, or PACE as it's known. And under PACE, the codes have fleshed this out in great detail. We've, we've included Code C and Code D in our book, books of authorities. Very fine-grained, very detailed. I, I won't take you through all of the intricacies. I simply wish to illustrate a few. But you must also consider the next uh, tab, which is the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act. Adverse inferences can be drawn from a detainee's exercise of his right to remain silent. That was a controversial statute when it was proclaimed. It uh, was subjected to great criticism in the decision in Murray in the European Court of Human Rights. I put the excerpt at tab eight because the problem is as the court in Murray points out, and I've marked the relevant passage at tab eight, if you have a detainee who is denied access to counsel, but then is also subject to an adverse inference from the exercise of his right to remain silent, he's in a no-win situation. That detainee needs access to counsel, and what the Murray court did was to say that the adverse inference, which I've just drawn your attention to, and I appreciate I'm moving a little quickly here, that the adverse inference that the English law provided for was unfair. The result was what set out at tab 9, a 1999 amendment to the statute that said where a detainee is denied access to counsel, no adverse inference may be drawn from the exercise of silence by that detainee. 
So having arrived very quickly at that last proposition, I ask this Court to consider that the law in England with respect to detainees, the right to silence, and access to counsel is remarkably different in quite a few important ways from the law in Canada. The appellants ask you to consider importing into our context the right to have a counsel be present, for example, at the police station, to, to sit through the interview and advise the detainee on an ongoing basis. And that raises the, the rhetorical question, well, are, are we going to go to a system of adverse inferences to counter that or to restore the balance in another direction? Or are we just going to import that single rule? It's, it's, it's a dangerous task, in my respectful submission, to proceed in the direction that the appellant is doing. I'm not saying this Court shouldn't do it. This Court will do what the Court thinks should be done. I'm simply urging a note of caution. How does it work in the United States where the Miranda rule has existed since 1966 with the right to be told that you have the right to be silent, that you have a right to counsel, and that you have the right to have your counsel present during the interrogations? That's right. And, and the research, and we've captured some of it in, in our factum, the Attorney General of Ontario has a little bit more detail than, than we have. Um, it appears that the, the, the practice there is quite different in the sense that very few detainees are found to invoke their rights to counsel. A great majority of them are considered, according to, to the research, are, to have waived it. Now, they have a much lower standard of waiver. And so if you take that into account, uh, Justice Abella, it means that even though superficially in the United States the right appears to be much more robust, in fact, the end result, I would suggest, uh, is not it's not, a, it's not a situation where, where detainees have a great deal more protection than they do here. It also, doesn't it, to some extent, answers the floodgates argument? Um, the floodgates that if you were to extend 10B? Well, but again, we have a much higher standard of waiver. Uh, you look at, uh, I, I don't need to take you there now, but in, in the condensed book and in our materials is a case called North Carolina versus Butler where an individual was suspected of a shooting, of killing somebody, and, and he was also involved in the gun trade, trafficking in, in firearms. So authorities went to him and questioned him about, you know, the gun uh, trade, and, and, and that's what he thought he was being questioned about. He was given his Miranda rights. And then they started asking him if he'd ever shot anybody, and those were questions directed to the homicide investigation, and he answered those questions, which turned out to be highly inculpatory when he was charged with murder. Well, the court found that although he was given his Miranda rights on the lower offense, the gun trafficking offense, he waived his Miranda rights, and that applied as well to the more serious homicide offense, quite different from black, for example. May I? So, so I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. No, that's fine. I just fine. wanted to bring you back to Canadian law before you run out of time. You're saying don't upset the balance that exists. What, in your view, is key in our present law to uh, ensure the balance if we are uh, ensure the balance when there's a right to interrogate a suspect who's in detention, if we can call it a right. But the law has recognized that the police can go in and interrogate a suspect who is under detention. You say don't, don't upset the balance. What is key to maintain that balance in your view? I know it's, a, it's a sort of a... Well, it's the interplay among the various rules that we have. It's the importance of the voluntariness rule including oppression, uh, quid pro quo, the other, uh, 
the other categories or components of the voluntariness rule that, that have been implemented. It's the importance of uh, duty counsel, a bridges warning, the adequate um, exercise or, well, the informational right to counsel, compliance by the police with the informational component of 10B and reasonable opportunity on the part of the detainee to exercise or implement his right to retain and instruct counsel. All of those rules, there's no single one in my respectful submission that stands out as dominant. They all work together. Um, they often overlap, but we know from, from this Court's previous judgments, uh, for example, in Oikel and Singh, that, that, that there is a recognized interplay. Um, and I have eight seconds left. I would simply conclude with respect to the English jurisdiction by pointing out that a solicitor, and this is in Code C, it, uh, it's the last item under Tab 10, a solicitor is defined as someone holding a certificate or an accredited or probationary representative. He doesn't even have to be a lawyer. And that's another detail that suggests care in carrying out what the appellants want you to do. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. McInnes. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice. Justices, uh, the Attorney General for Ontario is only going to address one of the three sort of larger uh, 10B issues that arise in these appeals, and it's one that actually relates to the appeals that you're going to be hearing after this one, after Sinclair, uh, and it's the Council of Choice issue. Uh, the Council of Choice issue uh, uh, in our submission really relates less to the scope of choice and more to the practical limits that non-state action and uh, events beyond the state's control must place on the limit, on the choice of counsel in the context of detention and arrest. Uh, this issue is conceptually distinct from the other issues uh, in, in these appeals in that it does not really relate to the balance of interrogation, uh, right to silence uh, that uh, has been so controversial. Uh, it really uh, is an issue that relates up front to the choice, extent to which uh, the specific choice of counsel uh, must be uh, fulfilled before the police can continue to conduct their questioning. But it doesn't involve anything to do with uh, what takes place after questioning and so on begins. Uh, the, the, the basic position of the Attorney General for Ontario on this question is that choice is, is a good thing. We're not trying to limit choice in this context. Uh, the, the point, rather, is that the, that the state has only a limited ex, uh, power to foster choice in this circumstance. Uh, that is because, for the most part, the factors that influence uh, the ability of a detainee to reach a particular lawyer that he or she wants to reach uh, are beyond the control and influence of the state. And more particularly, the state and the police have no control over whether the lawyer in question is willing to speak, is able to speak, uh, is available to speak. Uh, more specifically, there's no control over the extent to which information is left about when they can be reached or where they can be reached uh, in situations where someone is arrested after hours. Uh, so the bottom line in this situation is that defense counsel collectively and individually have a, a substantially more control over this aspect of 
uh, sort of the practical factors that affect choice than the state does. Uh, lawyers are able to leave information on their voicemail about where they can be reached. Uh, lawyers could, if they wish to, form collectives like family doctors do, so that there's someone available after hours. And like many law firms do, in fact, do, they can have arranged for someone from the firm to have the phone, so to speak, after hours in case there is a call. The state has no ability to regulate or control any of that. Uh, furthermore, the, it, what often happens in these cases is that the nature of the choice that the detainee makes about the lawyer they want to speak to itself raises uh, complications. Uh, for example, uh, they might pick a, an immigration lawyer that they know or a family lawyer they know because that may be the only lawyer that they're familiar with and those lawyers in turn may not have, uh, may not be reached after hours and may not have the sort of uh, uh, built into their practice that people are going to be calling them at night and so on. Uh, so that's, those are the kinds of practical limitations that there is on the scope for choice that the state has no control over. In effect, uh, what we say is that uh, choice should be, you know, al almost absolute, but that the menu from which you make those choices is, is really beyond the control of the state. And when you are in a situation where someone is detained, there is, uh, as I'll address in a moment, a need to conduct the, the, the investigation expeditiously, generally speaking, not always. Uh, and in that situation, the choices that are available to the detainee, detainee should consist of lawyers that can be reached in a modest period of time, uh, you know, a relatively short period of time, uh, particularly in cases where there is no specific information about when the lawyer will be reached. Why uh, should there be a need for exigent circumstances? I, I'm thinking if, uh, if a detainee is interrogated on Sunday, uh, but there's no rush to uh, speak to him, um, in the circumstances, and he wants to wait for Monday. What, what's the principled approach in this kind of circumstance? Uh, well, I, the answer in my submission, Justice Sharon, is that uh, one should not presume that the delay is not harmless just because the police at that point don't know what negative consequences might flow from delay. Now, I, I can see that there will be cases where it will be clear to the police, and one thinks of cold cases in particular where they're investigating a very old offense, uh, where there really isn't any, any uh, in terms of the investigation and its integrity, there isn't any problem with delaying. But in many cases, they will not know. It may be clear later at the trial when all this is litigated that they didn't, there wasn't a need for speed, but they don't know what they're going to be told by the detainee. They don't know what information uh, the detainee tells them that requires follow-up investigation, sometimes follow-up investigation that's time-sensitive. Uh, as Justice uh, Lemaire pointed out in Smith, evidence can, can literally evaporate or disappear. Uh, depending on its nature in various contexts. And so the, the point really is that it shouldn't be presumed that a wait of 8, 12, 24 hours is, is harmless. And in most cases, uh, it may well be that it isn't harmless and the police are not in a position to know that. Uh, this, the, the other point I want to make is that this court in Prosper and in Bridges uh, essentially held that while there is no constitutional obligation to provide state-funded counsel on detention, that when the state does that, uh, that will uh, you know, almost certainly result in substantially shorter uh, periods of time that the police are entitled to or re required to hold off uh, because they facilitated contact with at least duty counsel. And what's happened since those cases were decided uh, is that 
state-funded bridges council has become almost almost ubiquitous in Canada. I think that only Prince Edward Island, to my knowledge, doesn't have that system in place. And in, a, in, a, in essence, it's our submission that that was, in effect, a kind of constitutional promissory note that was written in favor of the Crown, and we're here to cash it today because this is the first time that the Court has had an opportunity to follow up on those, uh, or to, to, to uh, consider the issue, really, since it arose in those cases. Uh, just, just may I ask you this? I understand you to say that um, what is required in order for the right to counsel of one's choice to be respected is some reasonable effort to contact that counsel? Would that be a fair way of putting your submission? Yes. Right. Uh, effort on the part not only of the police but also the, the detainee. There, there's a, there's well, two there's sets of obligations. Of course, but the detainee is under the control of the police. So, when, for example, it, would it be sufficient simply to leave a message on an answering machine on a Sunday without uh, waiting at all for a response, or is something more required to see whether uh, that person's home phone number is listed? Well, the, the answer in my submission is that the sort of guidelines that, that, that we say should, should apply in this situation are that uh, the extent to which follow-up is required by the uh, police officer in that situation really in part depends on the, on the information that is left on the answering machine by the lawyer. It's open to lawyers who, who practice criminal law, and many do, to leave very specific information about how they can be reached after hours. A cell phone number can be provided and so on. When, uh, you know, some rudimentary follow-up may be uh, worth pursuing, but in most cases, uh, quite frankly, if it's just an answering machine in the lawyer's name, uh, the police are going to be left not really knowing when, if ever, that lawyer is going to call back. And, and, and my submission is only a brief period of, of delays can be justified if there's Bridges Council in place. I mean, is it not reasonable to suppose that where the lawyers opt to have answering machines, they pick up their messages? and in some cases at least pick up their messages within a reasonable delay, an hour or two. Yes. And, and so why should the absent exigent circumstances, uh, why should the police not be required to at least wait a reasonable period of time um, to see whether there will be a response before beginning to interrogate the Detainee. I think they should, but the question is what is a reasonable period of time? And, and my main submission is just it's not 12 hours or 24 hours. It's cl much closer to one hour than it is to 24 hours. And I'm appreciating that the specific timelines are not what you necessarily will want to impose, but the timeline with this Bridges Council should be seen as much, much shorter than something like uh, what you see in the Willier case where there was a suggestion of waiting 24 hours, for example. Well, the other uh, question was you seem to suggest that uh, because the police may not know the effect that delaying the interrogation might have, uh, that one is to presume that it might have an effect, and there is no burden on the accused, on the police rather, to justify proceeding with the interrogation on a Sunday when they know of no reason not to wait until Monday. So that's not good enough. The police have no reason not to wait until Monday, uh, but we shouldn't ask them to wait until Monday. 
Is that your position? My position is that there will be cases where the police are in a position to know that there's no real reason to think that a delay is going to cause a problem, but there will be a whole host of other cases, bearing in mind that these rules have to apply to the broad spectrum of cases uh, that we have, other cases where they just simply don't know because they don't know what the person is going to tell them and they don't know what's going to flow from that. And they're in the situation where they're applying a reasonableness standard uh, without really having all the information that a court will later have when it assesses it in the litigation. So Let me just put it this way, where the police have no reason to believe that a delay until Monday from a Sunday afternoon will have any impact on the matter, other than an acute, uh, other than perhaps permitting uh, the detained person to exercise his or her right to counsel of choice, um, should they delay? They have no reason to believe that delaying until Monday will affect the matter. The, the extent to which uh, the, the, the length of what would a reasonable time would be to delay would increase in those circumstances. Uh, it would rarely, in my submission, uh, go so high as 24 hours. Of course, in this case, the time of arrest was chosen by the police, and in all three cases, it was on weekends. Well, it, it's, it's, it may be, but it's not always chosen by police, and I would submit not usually chosen by police. I, I, I'm, I know that my time is up, and I'm just answering the question, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. McKinnon? I have five points, Chief Justice. Justices. Firstly, on the very narrow interpretation that my learned friends are asking this court to adopt on Section 10B, I say there's been a concession with respect to a breach. My learned friends make the submission that the right to Section 10B crystallizes and fulfills its purpose when a detainee has a meaningful opportunity to consult with counsel. I ask this court to consider whether two three-minute calls upon arrest are a meaningful opportunity to consult counsel. And I say the question, the answer should be a resounding no. I took you to the passage earlier, tab seven, uh, near the end, where the appellate was complaining that he only had a minute to talk with his lawyer. And I say that surely is not uh, sufficient. The second point is my learned friends made the point that my that the appellant did not ask to go back to the cell or did not ask to terminate the interview. I ask you to look to tab three in my condensed book on the cross-examination of this police officer because, in effect, it would not have made any difference if he had asked to go for uh, a termination of the interview. So it's at tab three, page 311. It's a few pages in, and line 14 through to 39. Question. And again, sir, up to that point in time, if Mr. Sinclair simply said, I've had enough, I want to call my lawyer, you would have stopped it, wouldn't you? You would have stopped the interrogation and let him call his lawyer. Answer. If he simply said at one point, I've had enough, I want to call my lawyer, I can't say I would have stopped the interrogation. You can't say that you would have? No, I know. It would all depend on the conversation that took place from there on in. You know, my lord, I always take the approach that, you know, unless the jeopardy of the individual changes or in some way I believe he's confused about his right or whether or not he can talk to me or not, and I know that he has contacted counsel like he did in this case, I'm not just arbitrarily going to provide him another opportunity to contact counsel. 
I don't believe there's a continuous right to obtain counsel unless some of those other issues uh, present themselves. The question overhanging this whole appeal is why? Why isn't the police officer prepared to give him another opportunity to contact counsel when he requests it? Can I bring you back on your first point? You're, you're inviting um, courts to inquire whether uh, the opportunity to consult counsel was meaningful, and you seem to be suggesting that we look at the content of it. Um, at least I, I, I have some trouble. How, how do you determine? Is two minutes meaningful uh, or not meaningful, but five is? Or how, how can we determine meaningful without really um, looking at what was said? Well, it seems I, I, meaning can only yes. be. I know there are extremes. If, yes. if you have a, a 20 second call just to find out your lawyer isn't there, you have not had an opportunity. But I'm just concerned how to draw the line on meaningful without inquiring into yes. what was said. And you, you'll recall from Bartle and Chief Justice Lemaire speaking of meaningful advice, and, and I think that is in there, the, the, the importance of getting meaningful advice in, in order to make meaningful decisions. I say you, look to the, you, you do look to the context. You look to what this individual said in the interrogation, and he was saying, in effect, that he didn't have a meaningful opportunity. didn't say context, but content. Because you seem to say, we, we should say that two times three minutes oh, no, is no. not meaningful. Well, how no. do we know? Maybe everything that needed to be said yes. was said or not. But when he is saying, after two three-minute calls, he hasn't had sufficient time, I say a conclusion can be drawn that it wasn't meaningful on his part. If, if I may, then that passage there that I took you to also shows the police officers' ability to exercise judgment throughout in response to Mellor and a friend's question that they have difficult, would have difficulty working out this process. Just to remind you, I'm trying to hold everyone to their yes. limits so that we get out of here sometime today. So you have about 39 seconds to yes. three points. I don't want to be too draconian. But no, no, I appreciate um, the, the final point simply is, the, I'll go to four points instead of five. The, limited purpose that my learned friends say the Section 10B right is, the limited subject matter that they say it is, it's exhausted, it can be exhausted on one call. In effect, there's no need for 10B on that perspective, because that's what the police officers did before the charter came in, and they continue to do that, remind them of their right to silence. And so I say, in effect, their position is, the respondent's position is, that during an interrogation, the 10B right is extinguished. Thank you. Thank you. I think we'll move right on to uh, the Willier case, if that's uh, satisfactory. And I'll call on Mr. Or, uh, Ms. Garcia. Excuse me. Chief Justice, Justices. I appear on behalf of the appellant, Mr. Willier, and the issue is somewhat different than the issue that uh, the court was addressing in the previous appeal of Sinclair. However, there is certainly overlap. The purpose of Section 10B again comes into question, and I would follow up in that regard on the last comment of Mr. McKinnon with respect to the purpose of 10B must be more than simply telling 
a detainee or an arrested individual of their right to remain silent because if that's all it is then there is little reason to need to call a lawyer upon arrest or detention um, the suggestion of Mr. Shrek of a recorded message or simply posting a reminder of the right in a room for the detainee would be sufficient. This court has held previously that it's not only the right to be advised of your rights, but it is the opportunity to be informed as to how to exercise your rights. And that is what, of course, is key in um, these analyses. It is somewhat difficult for the, the court, after the fact, to determine if a person has been given the opportunity to have the meaningful opportunity, but in my respectful submission, certainly in the case of Willier, it can be done and was done by the trial judge uh, in the first instance. A primary purpose of Section 10B is to discuss with a detained person or uh, arrested person their right to silence and how to exercise it. It is not the only um, purpose that uh, is encompassed by Section 10B and certainly in various cases depending on the circumstances issues of bodily samples, breath samples and bail are also matters that are and can be discussed. The case of Willier brings before the court uh, issues that have been previously decided by this honorable court in the cases of Ross and Black. The court in this respect is required to look at the issues of what is a reasonable opportunity to contact counsel of choice in the circumstances and what will suffice as unequivocal and informed waiver of that right. The case in Willier is different from the cases of Ross and Black in the sense that there is what ha was termed by um, the Court of Appeal an intervening event. Contrary to Ross and Black, once Mr. Willier attempted to call his lawyer of choice and left a message, Although he initially said, no, I don't wish to speak to another lawyer, he ultimately acceded to persuasion to call duty counsel. And so we, the court has been brought a new element with respect to how is that considered in the concept of has there been a breach of Section 10B in the context of a request for counsel of choice. In analyzing the effect of the contact with duty counsel, what inevitably has come before the court to consider 
is meaningful contact or meaningful opportunity to have contact and is the appellant or is the respondent for that matter required to show prejudice or lack of prejudice as a result of the appellant's contact with duty counsel as opposed to the counsel which he had wished to speak to. Finally, um, this matter also brings before the court the issue of Section 24.2 and exclusion of evidence as at the trial of this matter, um, the statement was found by the trial judge to be obtained in breach of Section 10B, that is, the appellant was not given a reasonable opportunity to contact his counsel of choice and he did not so waive that right. Section 24.2 in my submission will inevitably need to consider the intervening contact um, of the appellant with duty counsel. So those are the, the issues that uh, the Willier appeal brings before this court. And uh, in my respectful submission, all of the issues were appropriately and properly addressed by the trial judge at the first instance. And certainly as um, was agreed upon by the dissenting justice in the Court of Appeal, the trial judge applied the uh, well-settled law on reasonable opportunity and waiver appropriately. The findings of fact that he made he was able to make, he was justified to make, and the Court of Appeal majority in my respectful submission erred in finding otherwise. I believe that at the appellant's condensed book at tab four, a crucial exchange between the police and Mr. Willier solidifies what has happened and how he has not been given proper opportunity to speak to his counsel. Prior to this exchange at 7.49 a.m. Sunday morning, Mr. Willier had been arrested the previous day, had said he wished to speak to a lawyer on two occasions, but because he had been taken to a hospital, that had not occurred until 12.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. Mr. Willier initially stated to the officer at 7.50 in the morning that he wished to speak to a lawyer, but he didn't have a particular lawyer in mind. He was offered to call the 1-800 or duty council number again, and uh, instead, what he said is, okay, do you want to contact any other lawyer? And he gives the name of a lawyer, Peter Royal. The um, 
the officer assists by calling uh, the office number of Mr. Royal and provides the phone to Mr. Willier to leave a message. And then at page four at tab four, I would submit is the crucial exchange. At the top, L, and that is the officer, did you, you left a message there, did you? Willier, yes. Did you want to talk to any other lawyer this morning? No. To talk directly to a lawyer, we can phone this number here again, the after hours number, if you like. Willier, no, I think I'll just wait for inaudible. I just told the lawyer that. Well, their offices are closed, they said, yeah, on the answering machine, so they're not going to be available until tomorrow. Oh, unless, unless they check their messages all weekend. So if you want to talk to a lawyer today, a direct lawyer, you can call. That's why we have these after-hour numbers, why the legal aid sign has these. Willier, sure, let's phone them. It's my respectful submission that Mr. Willier was clearly attempting to exercise and assert his ability to have the opportunity to speak to a lawyer that, while he says this is not his lawyer, it's clearly the, a name of somebody that he thought may be able to help him. He said on two occasions after he left the message that he didn't want to call another lawyer. He finally agrees, and, and this is urged upon him immediately by the officer, who says to him, if you want to talk to a lawyer today, a direct lawyer, this is who you can call, call that number. Okay, let's call them. What else, in my respectful submission, was Mr. Willier going to do? He certainly is a person of, um, in my respectful submission, disadvantage in the sense of his position with the police. He is pursuant to the record of minimal education, somewhat suspect health concerns with respect to his drug and alcohol abuse or use the day before. And it is only reasonable to infer that he is going to take the direction of the police under whose control that he is in. So in my respectful submission, the first breach, as found by the trial judge, is he was not provided with the reasonable opportunity to speak with his counsel of choice, which he clearly wished to do. Now, it's Sunday morning. He's left a message. There was no suggestion in this case, as found by the trial judge, that there was any urgency or need to commence interviews immediately. There was no suggestion that it had to be done that day. There was suggestion that Mr. Willier was in some poor straits with respect to his health and his recent drug and alcohol. Um, consumption. In my respectful submission, if the constable at that time was going to say, look, I don't think you're going to hear from that lawyer today, call these people, it was incumbent on that officer at that time to say, okay, Mr. Willier, here is the situation. 
you can wait for a call back from that lawyer and I have to give you that opportunity to wait for the lawyer to call back. In the meantime, we can't take a statement from you, at the very least. However, even without having told Mr. Willier, and if there is no obligation on the police to tell him that, the opportunity still has to be provided in my respectful submission. Is it one hour or two hours, um, as suggested um, previously? A reasonable opportunity ha that, as has been discussed in previous cases, depends upon the circumstances. Is it an impaired driving case in which there is certain ex exigencies with respect to obtaining breath samples? Is there a suggestion that the person involved has crucial information that may be relevant to public safety? Or is it a case such as I submit a case in Willier, where a man is facing one of the most serious charges in the criminal code, there is no suggestion of urgency. In a case such as that, it was not unreasonable for the trial judge to come to the conclusion that on this set of facts, a reasonable opportunity may have required a wait until business hours the following day. Now that's not to say that that may have been necessary, that there may have been something uh, occur later in the day. Uh, certainly the police do not have to necessarily sit with Mr. Willier and say, okay, we'll wait till Monday morning and you can call again. Further chances could be given to Mr. Willier to call the same lawyer again. What is offensive in this particular case is the immediate redirection of a person who has clearly exercised their right to another number that he had already called and uh, clearly was not the initial number that he wished to call that morning. The Alberta, the majority of the Alberta Court of Appeal, um, in addition to finding that Mr. Willier had a reasonable opportunity, uh, found that uh, he had in any event waived his right to counsel of choice once he decided to call duty counsel and then later said he was satisfied with the advice that he received. Um, again, it is well established uh, law in my respectful submission uh, from this court, uh, certainly at least beginning in Prosper, but many other um, cases in different situations in which um, waiver of a right um, must be informed and certainly that is the case in other situations and uh, has been repeatedly um, stated by this court in Prosper, Bartle, Ross, Corpenay. It must be unequivocal and the standard is high. The burden is on the Crown to prove that there has been uh, waiver of a right. 
in my respectful submission again, if Mr. Willier was not advised of the ability to speak with or wait for uh, his chosen lawyer, then speaking with another lawyer uh, is insufficient. The other area of concern with respect to the record in this matter, and I, I would like to address that, is at tab 6, and this is the of the condensed book. This is the Mr. Willier's interaction with a second officer at the beginning of an interrogation that was started approximately 50 minutes after he was finished his, uh, the, the one-minute call, uh, phone call with duty counsel. Can I ask you just about the, the timing? We, we hear a lot about that in these cases. It was a one-minute call, it was a three-minute call, it was a four-minute call. Uh, and we don't know what the content, obviously, of those calls is. Is there any restriction on how long an accused is permitted to have to make these calls? I mean, the fact that it is a brief call which suggests that it couldn't possibly have been sufficient um, indicates that there's some pressure to make it quicker than it should otherwise have been. I mean, what, what's the significance of the all of that aside from the common sense inference? The significance of the length of call in this, certainly in this fact scenario, where an individual is asked to speak to one lawyer but has been directed to another, is that the Court of Appeal um, majority and um, the respondent will argue, well, he may have wanted to speak to his own lawyer, but he has been given the opportunity to speak to another. If one is to have the reasonable opportunity for meaningful contact, and there is a call of one minute, now it is very difficult to say, you know, is five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes enough? What is enough? Because the police cannot and ought not delve into what was the content of the conversation. But in this particular case, and at tab six at the bottom of the page, we have some insight, and the trial judge had insight as to the content of the call that was one minute. And uh, after, again, rereading Mr. Willier, the formal rights, the officer said, you know, do you understand? Yes and do you want to call a free lawyer or any other lawyer? And Mr. Willier's response was not yes or no, but it was the one this morning is being it Sunday, there's not too much he can do and just not say nothing. So when I speak of the length of the call, it can become relevant if there is further insight on the record in the evidence as to what may have been the content of the call. And this court is in, the court is in a position to determine whether or not perhaps there was meaningful contact or the opportunity to have meaningful contact. And 
it certainly is not the police that guide how long a call is going to be. That is between the um, detained person and the, um, the lawyer on the other end. So if this weren't a council of choice case, you'd say the minute or the three minutes might be fine? The, the difference here is the, ch the council of choice. That is the fact that brings the quality of the exchange into question. And again, this is not asking the courts to delve into you know, what exactly was said in the conversations, you know, it, we're not to go there. But in a case where it is being suggested that the individual waived his right to speak to his counsel of choice, and this is how he did it, that is a matter that ought be of concern to the court. And by matter, uh, respectfully, um, logic and common sense uh, can advise the court, along with Mr. Willier's comment on the record, that one minute isn't going to do it. In another case where somebody decides on their own to talk to duty counsel and they have a short conversation and there's nothing on the record to suggest there's a problem with it, that may be a different circumstance. It is Just on the issue of counsel of choice, uh, are you saying that if the accused says, I want to speak to Mr. Royal, and he can't then reach him, that the police are forbidden to say that uh, there's legal aid duty counsel available? No, I, I don't believe that uh, I'm saying that, uh, Justice Rothstein. What I am saying is here in this case, what Mil Mr. Willier said initially, he said, do you want to call somebody else? No. Why don't you call 1-800? No. Well, look, if you want to speak to a lawyer today, this is what you're going to call. So it is not prohibited of the police to say, do you want to try to call somebody else? Do you want to try to call duty counsel? But they went further in this okay. case. So it all hangs on the fact that at this one point he said no. If, if he hadn't said well, he no, said he wished to wait. Yes. If he hadn't said that, then uh, there would be nothing wrong with the police saying, uh, uh, "Do you want to call legal aid duty counsel?" And if he said yes, then that would be sufficient to comply with the constitutional right of counsel of choice, in your view. The perfect scenario would be that. Once he has said he wished to call his specific lawyer, he had left a message and said he wanted to wait before any other suggestions are provided to the detained person, they ought be given the opportunity to the, wait. The, the, the point that I'm trying to understand is this. Uh, if I, I'm su suggesting you hypothetically that if he had not uh, said no and said he wanted to wait, but he couldn't reach him, and the police said, well, if you want a lawyer, there's legal aid duty counsel. Would that constitute choosing counsel? If the accused person said they didn't need to wait for a callback and were willing to try somebody else, that may be acceptable. Obviously, these are quite contextual um, scenarios, but uh, 
you know, according to the decisions in uh, Ross and Black, a, a person does have the ability to request their counsel of choice and to wait for a reasonable period of time. Obviously, there needs to be diligence on the part and of under under Smith. There needs uh, there is uh, the detainees are under an obligation to try to be diligent and to uh, to end. Uh, perhaps if he doesn't, if he is not diligent. Is he exercising a reasonable choice? <clears throat> Correct. And I... if you're, uh, let's be pra practical, it is Sunday, there is very little hope of reaching council of choice. Must everything be held up while there is always the possibility of having access to duty council of uh, legal aid? Each investigation will be different, and the amount of time period required to wait will vary. But let's see, we have a series of those weekend arrests, it seems, where we know, where, well, we may very well know that the council of choice may be anywhere, off to the cottage, relaxing, out of town, whatever we know, and where we know that the person that can be reached is probably almost only the duty on the Council of Legal Aid. I would submit in a case uh, where there is no urgency, where the stakes are high, such as in a murder uh, investigation, where it is clear, and it was certainly clear to the officers uh, in the case of uh, Willier that um, there is no chance that the detainee is going anywhere, anywhere anytime soon. He's not in a position to obtain bail. I would suggest that if he is going to, I would suggest that they ought to wait until business ends. Well, on the other hand, if you look at this from the perspective of the police officer, he will probably losing his opportunity to talk to the, uh, to the accused before he is made to appear before a justice of the peace. The uh, police certainly have the ability to speak to the uh, detained person after uh, a hearing with the Justice of the Peace as well. Uh, certainly, again, in these sorts of cases. Now, again, I, I can't suggest for a minute that in an impaired driving situation, this the same reasonable opportunity is going to, to apply. Reasonable opportunity is a factual, contextual determination. And in the case of Mr. Willier, it was a, an assumption on the part of the officer that they would not get a call back, that the, uh, that the offices, no one would pick up messages. And she took it upon herself, therefore, to say we're not, in, in essence, say we're not waiting. And here you go, this is who you call to talk to somebody today. Um, Again, the trial judge at the first level found uh, that this was unreasonable, and he, I, in my respectful submission, was certainly applying the correct uh, legal tests with respect to um, this matter. You know, in the little excerpt that you've, you've plucked out, uh, all she says is, so if you want to talk to a lawyer today, a direct lawyer, you can call. That's why we have these hours why the legal aid sign has there. And Mr. Williers says, sure, let's phone them. Uh, isn't it 
doesn't that indicate some indication that he's he's made a choice? I mean, sure, he did say no, but she offers this as a suggestion, and he says yes. Why isn't that a choice? It's not an informed choice, as uh, he, he, on the record, has not been given an idea that, in fact, you know what? You, you have the right to wait for a period of time to see if this lawyer calls you back. So he makes a choice. But he was told on the record that he could choose any lawyer he wanted. And he did. Well, but <laughs> he, he just, did twice, if the lawyer he chose to speak to a lawyer, but the message that's coming through, I would respectfully submit, is unless that lawyer answers the phone right now, then you move on, you don't have a choice. And in my respectful submission, that is not um, consistent with the uh, pronouncements of law in um, Ross and in Black. Uh, the court, the majority of the Court of Appeal brought one other factor uh, into consideration in overturning the trial judge's uh, decision, and that was uh, a comment that the appellant did not show actual prejudice as a result of his inability to speak to his uh, counsel of choice. Uh, in my respectful submission, that is an impossible burden for the appellant, uh, as that is requiring him to speculate as to what may have been said to him if he spoke to somebody else. And if he spoke to that person, he would not, therefore, have given a statement. Uh, I suppose one could speculate as well that because he just spoke to duty counsel, he was prejudiced because he provided ultimately an incriminating statement. So with respect, I, in this context of Section 10B and uh, statements provided thereafter, um, bringing the... the it's a somewhat misplaced to suggest that the appellant is, is required to show a prejudice. I, the matter then goes to Section 24.2, and um, the trial judge, in my respectful submission, rightly found that uh, Mr. Willier had not been provided with a reasonable opportunity to contact his counsel of choice. He did not waive that right. And the contact with duty counsel did not rectify the breaches, therefore, that had been found of Section 10B. As the trial judge found, it was not, it could not be seen in all the circumstances to be meaningful contact. The trial judge found that um Constable Lahey, Lahey, words were actively discouraged um, him from waiting for a call back and immediately directed. Said, and you rely on that. That seems to be 
the conclusion that's reached, notwithstanding a chronology that goes back to the day before when the police consistently wait and wait and wait overnight until he has finally an opportunity to call? Is there any evidence other than what you've shown us that would show an active discouragement of the of calling or waiting for counsel of the choice? Because it seems that they did for several hours, didn't they? I'm sorry, they did. At 5.40 at the hospital, he was advised to the right to counsel and said he would exercise it at a later date, later time. 12.30 that night, he had a three-minute call with legal aid. Just trying to figure where the trial judge got the view that he was actually. At 7.50, he was, the number was called. Um, he wanted to speak to Mr. Royale. And then all of that led to a conclusion that he was being actively discouraged. The, the, certainly the um, interaction with Constable Lahey is, is key with respect to con, um, active discouragement. When Mr. Willier was initially arrested at 1240 on Saturday, presumably um, because of his state of health, he was not in fact advised at all initially of his right to counsel as the police decided instead that um, it was um, more urgent that he go to the hospital to be treated, in, in which they do and he is admitted to treatment. So at 5.40 he is advised then for the first time of his right to counsel by I believe it is Sergeant Dunn. And he does assert his right to counsel. He's just saying, I don't want to call right now. And in my respectful submission, that wasn't unreasonable. He was in the hospital on intravenous. But he's certainly saying, yeah, when, you know, I would like to call. So it's, I would respectfully submit that police aren't holding off. And they're also not at the position at that point of wanting themselves to commence on an interview. They are waiting for him to be treated in the hospital. And he's ultimately... Um, discharged at midnight so yet again a different officer deals with him uh, constable stafford uh, he rereads the right and when they get to the station the call is made at 12:30, that when he is released did is there evidence about whether he asked for mr royale and that occasion there is no suggestion at that time that he asked for mr royal so he that, that's when he called duty council exactly and um, he is then put to bed for the night, essentially, until the police are ready to begin their um, interrogations. So at 7.49 the next morning, he's taken from his cell, and it's at that point he says himself, again, um, bringing it up, can I call a lawyer? And that leads into the um, interaction with Constable Lahey. The act of discouragement, in my respectful submission, the trial judge certainly was in the position to listen to the actual audio tapes of these conversations. Uh, the act of discouragement is what is outlined on tab four, page four, with respect to sort of overbearing Mr. Willier's decision to say, no, I don't want to call someone else, I want to wait. And Constable Lahey 
nonetheless directing him to call the line he had already called last night. Um, certainly in the um, decision of the dissenting justice on the issue of Section 10B, um, Madam Justice Bealby found that the trial judge was uh, reasonable in finding that uh, it was reasonable to presume or infer that Mr. Willier was not particularly satisfied with the call he had the night before. Therefore, he asked to speak to a lawyer again and came up with a name, presumably of somebody he knew of or had heard of. So the, the excerpts that you have at tab six your book then, when did that occur? Uh, at tab six, there's a, a it's the interview with uh, Brenda Moorside, and there's a, a long exchange at that first page and then the second page, page eight, but it culminates in that she's trying to ascertain if he understands what his rights are, and there's this long conversation, and he's asked at page nine, what's your understanding of your rights? And he says, that I have the right to remain silent and not to say anything and whatever I do say could be used against me and that's the choice that we kind of talked it over. She continues, that sounds good and, and based on what you've explained to me, I think you understand you've already talked to a lawyer twice, now yes. And she, and she says, as, as, so long as you're satisfied with the advice that you got, we'll proceed, but I want you to know at any time if you want to stop and call a lawyer, more than welcome, yeah. So what are we to make of that? At, at one point, his initial no, I don't want to speak to anyone else is kind of lost in the context. To this conversation follows after what occurred with Constable Lahey and Mr. Willier wanting to wait for a call back and yet being directed to the duty council line. So this follows about 50 minutes later in the actual interrogation room. And this is uh, Constable Gillespie uh, going over again, it is true, uh, Mr. Willier's rights. However, and uh, again I submit that the trial judge was in the best position to assess the, the tone of how this occurred. Um, by the time Mr. Willier gets to this position with Constable Gillespie, what has been informed in his mind is that, well, the lawyer I wanted to call for, they're not going to let me um, call that lawyer. Uh, they're telling me, or I've been told, if I want to talk to a lawyer today, that that's the 1-800 number that I've called. So Constable Gillespie, again, in my respectful submission, to cover his bases, reads again the, the formal rights off the card. Uh, Mr. Willier says he understands. Again, he's asked, do you want to call a free lawyer or any other lawyer? And Mr. Willier, instead of saying, no, I don't, I'm happy, or yes, I do, but he says, the one this morning is just because being it's Sunday, there's not too much he can do and just say nothing. So his, his, in my respectful submission, that provides context for his frame of mind. And... Constable Gillespie asked, well, are you satisfied with the advice you received? Yeah. In my respectful submission, again, an, an accused or a detained person 
quite frankly, is not in any position to know whether they have received good, bad, or sufficient advice. Uh, the question in my respectful submission is of little assistance to the court in determining whether there has been a reasonable opportunity to obtain meaningful advice. I'm just wondering where, where the line then needs to be drawn because if a detainee says, I want to speak to Peter, Peter Jones, uh, that, it almost sounds as if that the police uh, should just leave it at that because they run the risk if they then offer legal aid and, and he chooses to speak to legal aid that it may all come back to haunt them. Well, again, the, 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 the point of Section 10B is to, prov to attempt to, to level the playing field, as it were, between the detained person and the police, to provide the detained person with the opportunity to get you know, a little bit up to speed as to what will be going on between him and the most powerful state in whose custody he is. So to suggest that the police need be careful with respect to the opportunities that they provide to these um, detained persons to um, try to exercise their rights, I think that they do need to be careful because this is an important right. Uh, it is the only access that this detained person is going to have to the outside world in, a, in essence. I, I, I guess what I'm struggling with is that you're almost suggesting as if they should do less rather than more for the detainee. If he can't, can't, if he can't reach his lawyer of choice and the, the, um, the police uh, get into trouble by suggesting, well, there is this 1-800 number, there is legal aid, there is availability, are they not providing Well, more? if they're going to go down that road in my respectful submission, and the person comes out of the phone room a, a minute later and says they really didn't have much to say to me, um, it might be incumbent on the officers to say, well, I think maybe we better wait. Um, now again, in all situations, that's not going to come, um, that's not going to be apparent. But if it is apparent, you know, again, the, 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 the accused person, sure, they're going to, um, assert themselves to a certain extent, but not all are able to be as assertive as others. And there is a duty to, uh, I would submit on the state, to ensure that the accused person is treated fairly. And uh, with this knowledge in this circumstance, the police cannot have thought that. Now, Mr. Sart, Constable Gillespie followed up after Constable Lahey. Now, he may not have known exactly what went on. He knew that there had been contact with counsel. But in my respectful submission, the right hand needs to know what the left hand is doing. And if Constable Gillespie was unaware that there had been specific requests, then um, that is the problem of the state. Constable Gillespie did know that he had spoken to a lawyer twice. Correct. So he did have, he, he, he knew what had gone on. I mean, yes. Uh, uh, but it sounds to me like, uh, uh, like you're sort of saying that the police limited the call in some way. The police didn't limit the call. He could have called for as long as he wanted, couldn't he? No, the police didn't limit the call. Um, I agree. Um, the police, in my respectful submission, limited his ability to wait and then Mr. 
um, Willier proceeded on that basis by thinking uh, in my respectful submission that I've got to call this 1-800 number. That's the only person I'm going to talk to today. And although Constable Gillespie followed up and read the rights again, uh, he, you know, on at page 8 of the statement in the middle, Constable Gillespie says, okay, and I just want to remind you that all persons detained in police custody have the right to immediate legal advice regardless of financial status. Detained persons also have the right to choice of counsel. You may choose to use free legal advice number or the number and a book will be provided to you. Mr. Willier, yes. And Gillespie then says, and I think you've already done that, but I just want to make sure you understand. Again, he is, in my respectful submission, not concerned about Mr. Willier, but concerned about the, um, the record and how it will appear with respect to uh, whether or not the police um, respected Mr. Willier's rights. Thank you. Um, the court is proposing if council agree to come back at 1.45 and adjourn now, of course. Uh, so we will adjourn until 1.45.